This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, everybody, this is Larry the Cable Guy. Check this out. So I'm in my truck driving with my buddy, and we was heading up to the men's warehouse to fart in the suits, and he's listening to his phone, and I said, that sounds like Hermie Sadler. He said, it is Hermie Sadler. He's got a podcast called Leaning Right and Turning Left with Sadler and the Senator. I said, Sadler and the Senator? He said, yeah, that's his good buddy, Virginia State Senator Bill Stanley. I said, well, what in the world? He didn't know this. I said, did you know that Hermie Sadler was voted one of the 50 best-looking drivers in NASCAR? He said, I did not know that. I said, because it ain't true. <laughs> you never know, though. He never takes off his helmet. But I know one thing. This show, Leaning Right, Turning Left, is good. So pull up a chair right there by your phone, get yourself a cold beer, and give a listen right here to this week's episode of Leaning Right, Turning Left with Sadler and the Senator. I'll tell you what, I bet Michael Waltrip's even listening. He's always wanted to do something like that. Oh, Sadler, got another one over on Waltrip. Get her done! I'm Virginia State Senator Bill Stanley, and I'm listing to Starboard. That's sailor talk for I'm leaning right. <laughs> I'm Hermie Sadler. I can't, you know, I always say on this podcast, I'm turning left, and... Now I'm seeing that on some mailers, some flyers <laughs> yeah, from my right. <laughs> You turn way left. You and Louise is in the car. Do you even turn right when you're in the car with her? I mean, it looks like you're going to Leftyville. Yeah, in, the, uh, in the racing terms, if you turn back to the right, the next thing you hear in your ear is, are you all right? Because <laughs> <laughs> you're in the fence. Yeah, yeah. That's, uh, that's pretty good. Yeah, I've been hearing uh, you guys are great buddies. Yeah, 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 and you, I guess, conspire together with the uh, with the Biden campaign, and it was and it's so George much Soros, you know. And I, I'm still learning the what life is like in politics versus the real world. Yeah. So this last mailer that uh, Emily Brewer sent, the picture is me and Louise Lucas. The actual picture was me and Louise Lucas and my brother. At the state capitol in the event that he was recognized on the Senate floor. By they, me. By you. They cropped Elliot out of the picture. <laughs> they didn't want him in there. Uh, didn't, didn't fit the narrative. And so they cropped the picture. And then the tweet they put in there, they conveniently forget to add the whole second part of the tweet. When I tweet the picture at the bottom, I say, despite the fact that we don't agree on anything politically, <laughs> it was nice to see you. And uh, not so according they, to them, they took not according to them. <laughs> it's you y'all people, y'all people, you call me bastard. y'all people in politics. Hey, 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 don't, don't. <laughs> y'all people, y'all people. Yeah, well, y'all. well, you know, we've been promising this. We did part one. We replayed that great interview we had with your brother early on. It was like the second or third podcast. Right at episode. the beginning, we had Double J there, our boss from Podcast Heat. Yeah, it was funny. It was hilarious. But we stopped it. Because it was going on so damn long, uh, because there was so much history we had to talk about. Unlike you, Hermie, in your career, yeah, uh, there's a lot of history here. If I'd have won, if I'd have won five more races, I'd have been a better Senate candidate. <laughs> <laughs> no, you, you'd be doing something else. I'm telling you right now. But it was a great, and in fact, I was listening to it on the way down. 
uh, just to make sure I was refreshed and, and know what we talked about so I don't talk about that crap again. But it was so funny. We always said we were going to have him back. But here we have him finally, part two of the Elliot Sadler interview. So these are the Elliot Sadler rules today. We're going to go over uh, the rest of his life. We ended when he was the mayor of Stewart, Virginia, in Patrick County, beautiful Patrick County, when he won in Bristol for the Wood Brothers. What a great story that he was. He just said Eddie Wood called him this week. He did. <laughs> what do you have to say? I'm not even waiting for the introduction. Hey, I'm Elliot Sadler. Hey, I'm on the podcast today. I was waiting for you two guys to get to an introduction, but you're going to keep going on and on. Uh, he sent me a text Monday night, and I'm not going to say exactly what's on the text, but we'll just go with, hey, Elliot, how are you? Um, but he took his grandson to Monday Night Raw in Greensboro. Oh, yeah? So I told him he won Granddad of the Year in uh, certain terms, but uh, actually, I love Eddie Wood, Lynn Wood. You know the whole the whole group. We we had a lot of good memories together. So when we uh, last left the podcast, we had just won at Bristol, and we had the parade, and they toilet people, you know, toilet papered the houses, and yeah. you know everything was going great. Uh, as far as great. everything was going great, as far as the Wood Brothers were concerned, and that was back in two thousand and one. That was two thousand and one, which was yeah. like uh, the you know the the apex, the top of. NASCAR racing at the time. Oh, yeah. Of course, we had the loss of uh, Dale Sr. Yeah. And uh, and racing was racing, man. I mean, you know, what I'm watching now in Bristol is there's a lot of empty seats. They weren't at that race. No, I mean, we, that was definitely at the peak. We had a lot of good personalities in the sport at that time. Everything was growing, going in the right direction. The TV stuff was just starting to take off. We were just starting to kind of move out to the Midwest and West a little bit. So uh, we had, you know, Jeff Gordon was a leader of the pack then, you know, after Dale's uh, passing, uh, and he was able to kind of bridge some gaps and, you know, socially with, uh, with people to kind of make them NASCAR fans, but we were definitely going in the right direction. And that was definitely a good year for us. 2001 was special to me. And we re relive it a little bit winning yeah. at Bristol. So close to home for the, for the Wood brothers was at, at a track as, as many wins as they have in NASCAR to win at a track they had never won at was, um, that, that was a pretty good deal. I got a question and I may have asked this if I did, forgive me, but I was not there. I I was at the racetrack on Saturday. I was not there on Sunday. But take us back to the end of that race because I don't remember the sequence that led, that led up to it, but you and the 43 were on the racetrack with old tires. Right. And I forgot how many. What what went into or what do you remember about when that caution came out, that final caution came out, and what what decision process went into Staying on the racetrack versus pitting and track position. Because you, in my view, those last 30, 40, 50 laps were probably the, some of the best laps you ever drove in right. your career. So I can stand here and lie to you uh, and say it was a great decision on our part to stay out. When honestly, <laughs> it was a mistake. So at Bristol, everything happens very quickly. So we're under caution and we're trying to decide whether to pit or not to pit. It's 75, 80 laps left. Well, back then in racing, lead lap cars were on the outside, lap down cars were on the inside. So it's what not could possibly like, go wrong. <laughs> what could possibly go wrong? But if you're really eighth or seventh, you're really 14th or 16th counting lap down cars on the inside. Right. So it wasn't like you got to choose and get up front like it is today. So Pat Trison was my crew chief, and we were actually talking over each other. He was telling me to pit. At the same time, I'm asking him, hey, you have to tell me something. Tell me something. I'm getting to the commitment line where I have to commit to pit or stay out. You got to tell me something. So we were talking at the same time. Well, I never heard anything. And usually our rule of thumb, if I didn't hear anything, I stay out. 
So I stayed out. And they come on radio and go, you idiot, what are you doing? You need to pit. Every, you know, A lot of cars are pitted behind you, blah, blah, blah. I was like, I didn't hear you. So it was a mistake that led to us getting track position. And what, what we found out, getting clean air and out front um, really helped our car a lot. And then a couple of cars behind us, you know, kept tires, too, that kind of bogged down the leaders as well. What, uh, who other than the 43 do you remember? I, I can't remember. I remember y'all two guys were. We kind of got away from everybody took, else. Got away at, in traffic, yeah. Yeah, but I can't remember who else did it. I just remember everybody making a big deal about the 21 and the 43 racing each other for the win. Right. John mm -hmm. Andretti uh, was in the 43 at the time. And I, I think for a lot of. NASCAR fans that have been a fan for a long time really, I think, enjoyed that part of it. And you can go on YouTube and see that too. And, and oh, they yeah. make a big deal about the it's 21 great. and the 43. And that had been eight years. I learned that last night. Eight years since the Wood Brothers had won. Yeah. That had been a long drought that you It had been stopped. a long drought. The, 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 about four years before um, Michael Waltrip won the All-Star race. But before that, it was like Morgan Shepard was the last one to win, like you said, eight years before. But that made 2001 very sweet, a lot of fun. And, um, you know, we had a great season to end 2001, and then 2002 was my last year with the Wood Brothers uh, before I moved on to Robert Yates in 2003. So how was 2002? I mean, it was 2002 was great. We ran great all year long. We were in the top 10 or 15 in points all year long. Like, we had a great, uh, a good season. But that, that leads me to my, my next story. So I drove late models for a guy named Perry Light. He's from Butner, North Carolina, when we raced at Orange County Speedway. Well, he could imitate Robert Yates to a T. He could. So earlier in my career, he would call me and say, hey, this is Robert Yates. I want to offer you a job, blah, blah, blah. And it wasn't. So in Did you buy it? Huh? Did you buy it? Oh, 100%. I was, oh, man, this is great. And I'd call my mom and dad, and we'd talk about it. And come to find out, he called me a couple of days later, hey, man, that was me messing with you. <laughs> so in 2002, that. in the middle of the season, I get a call. From Robert Yates, who I think is Perry Light, the guy who used to own the late model I drove. So, hey, this is Robert Yates. I want to talk to you about driving my car. We got a great opportunity. We have a new sponsor coming in, M&Ms, blah, 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 all of this stuff. And I'm going, yeah, right, okay, Perry. And I got really blow it up. Dude, I'm busy today. I don't have time for your crap. So I hung up on him. So... <laughs> This out good. A couple days later, I get a call from Dale Jarrett, who's one of my best friends in the world. Yeah. Hey, I just want to let you know, I gave Robert Yates your phone number, your cell phone number. Um, Rick, Ricky's going to leave the 28 car, and we're trying to fill that spot, and I've put your name in the, in the hat to maybe drive that car. So here, probably in the next couple of weeks, uh, Mr. Yates is going to reach out to you, and I'm like, Oh crap, <laughs> dude! I I mean, he somebody just called me a couple of days ago. He said that was probably him. I said I hung up on him, and this is why. And I tried to tell Dale the story. Dale said, "Well, I'll call him." So I, I'll call him. So he called me anyway. Robert called me back, and he said, uh, "I need you to come to Charlotte. I, I want to meet with you. We might have an opportunity to drive with a twenty-eight car at the time that Rick Ricky Rudd was in." So I had to apologize to him, and then I went and met with Robert. Uh, later on, like maybe a month later, and then uh, put some stuff together to drive the 30. They changed it to the 38 car with M&M's starting in 2003. Wasn't that the first time M&M's had really gone that big in sponsorship? Yeah, they were with Kenny Schrader and MB2 Motorsports, but I got them their first ever win in racing in 2004 at Texas, which was a big deal for me to get that sponsor a win. And i tell you how treating people, I've learned so much in my life through racing, so I meet with Robert Yates, 
And we talk about me coming to drive a 38 car and Eminem's a possibility of a sponsor. Well, that weekend at Charlotte, um, the owner of Eminem's was coming to the race. Her name is Victoria Mars. She's actually one of, of the daughters. She is just as one of the nicest people you ever met. I didn't know that at the time. So she comes up. I got a knock at my bus door. It's raining outside in Charlotte. The race is being postponed. I have a knock at my door and I open it, and it's a PR person. It's Victoria Mars and her husband, David. So I'm like, they're like, hey, these people want to meet you. So I'm like, okay, come on in. They're like, we can come in? You, you don't want to come outside? No. You know, come on in. You, you want anything to drink? You want a coffee or water? So we made them coffee. So we sat and talked for an hour, and we get ready to get up from the meeting, and Victoria says, as many times as I've been to a racetrack, nobody has ever invited me inside their bus. And I said, my door's never locked. Y'all come over anytime you want. We cook breakfast in the morning, blah, blah, blah. And the next morning, her and her husband show up for breakfast, and we cook them breakfast, and we just have the best meeting and enjoyed being around each other. Next thing I know, the whole deal came together. So sometimes it pays to be to be nice and be humble and be, you know, be good, down to earth. Good thing you answered out. the door. I'm like the phone call when you hung up on Yeah, Robert. when I hung yes. up on Robert. So um, we, <laughs> now, we, we laughed about that for a long time. Now you, just right out of the bat, bat you got the pole at Darlington? I did. In Talladega? Talladega, yeah. Okay. So, I mean, you're right out of the gate. You're, yeah, we you're were fast. good right out of the gate. We were in the... Um, we were in the top five in points there for a long time. The first year I was with them, and in 2004 was the first year of the chase for NASCAR. That's right. Uh, first year to chase. They only took the top ten. Well, we made it. Yeah. We made it, and we were a part of it, which is a big deal for me to be. Uh, I'm the only driver in NASCAR history that was a part of the very first ever chase for the Cup Series and the first ever chase for the Xfinity Series. So that was a big, that was a special moment for me to be a part of that first one and get M&M's their first win as well in 2004. So now 2003, though, before we get to 2004, you had probably one of the most spectacular crashes. I did. At Talladega. I have, thank you for bringing that up, uh, Bill. Well, I appreciate well, that. <laughs> you keep going, going to hang up the phone on you. I got to go. Yeah. <laughs> well, but the reason I ask uh, uh, and want to talk about it is because I saw it. And, yeah. I, and I remember seeing it, of course, back in 2003 as a race fan, but really didn't kind of. You know, it's not permanently in your brain. And I saw it probably about 10 times last night. Uh, Which flipped, one was this? This was 2003. I saw <laughs> it's both 2003, of them. yeah. So all you got to do is type in <laughs> Elliot Sadler crashes on YouTube. And bam, oh, a bunch right of them there. come up. I mean, like awesome. pages after pages. <laughs> it's awesome. So in 2003, Bill, that was the fastest race car I have ever had. Mm. That is the fastest car I've ever sat in compared to everybody else. We sat on the pole that day. Uh, we had had a pit stop miscue, and I went to the rear of the field, and I was coming back up through the field. And I had a good run coming down the, the middle of the back stretch. It was three lanes, and I'm coming through the middle, and Dale Jr. is kind of blocking lane to lane. He's leading. Mm -hmm. Well, there's one rule at Talladega that we all know as race car drivers. You do not wreck Dale Earnhardt Jr. <laughs> you just do not. You can wreck anybody else there you want. But you just do not wreck that car. Is that, that about a safety issue after the race yes, is over? Yes, <laughs> that's about getting home, you know, with all your teeth <laughs> in still in your head. So anyway, when I'm coming down the middle, he tries to make a, a late block from the top lane to the middle lane to slow me down. Well, I swerve to miss him and go, come across Kurt Busch's nose. He was driving a 97 Sharpie car at the time. Mm -hmm. When he did that, it just clipped me into the grass and my car went straight up. And it's, the, the hardest thing to explain to people 
when you're spinning out on asphalt, you can hear the tires, you know, screeching and making noise. But when it goes up in the air, it gets extremely silent, really quiet. Hmm. So I'm, I'm up in the air and I, I kind of look out the left and I can see the catch fence and I see the racetracks. I'm kind of going up backwards. And then you start flipping and I just kind of get in the fetal position. I tuck my head and I grab the bottom of the steering wheel with both hands and I get as low as I can in the car and just hold on until it finally finishes. Well, the weird part about that is when I flip so much, the radio wire was running around the top of the race car. It cut it. So when they're calling me on the radio asking me if I'm okay, I don't answer. I don't hear them because the radio wire is cut. And I got, it's like I've been gardening, Bill. I had grass and dirt and mulch and mud and everything all over me because we were flipping so much in the grass. It was like five times you flipped. It was. So they get me out the car. They put me on a stretcher. They take me to the infield care center. So they lay me down, and they have nurses and doctors all around me. Well, the doctors, they're asking me all these questions, right? Who are you? Who's the president? What town are you from? Just to see how, where your mental state is. And I felt like I passed the test pretty well. I felt like I answered all the questions. So then the doctor says, well, we need to run an IV. Well, I hate needles more than anything in the world. No, you're not running an IV. Yes, you, yes we are. We have to run. You are not putting an IV in me. That's not going to happen. You are not sticking me with a needle. Yes, you are. So the doctor took his hand, and I know it's hard for me to visualize this, but he took his hand and put it on my forehead and pinned me down to put a start a needle. So I grabbed his hand and told him I was going to whoop his ass if he put his hand on <laughs> Luckily, me Luckily, he didn't talk to Victoria Mars like yeah, this. No, no. <laughs> I was mad. The doctor will not be sponsoring his car. <laughs> yeah, So, because I, I said, dude, I answered all your questions. You are not putting a needle in me. And they said, Elliot, you're not acting right. You must have a major concussion. Uh, you have to go to University of Alabama, Birmingham. I ain't going to University of Alabama, Birmingham. I'm going home. So Mike Helton came in. And they still, this is all in the infield care center. He said, Elliot, if you want to race next week, you have to get on the helicopter and they're going to fly you to University of Alabama, Birmingham to do a CAT scan. So all of that had took place in the infield care center. So the next thing they show on freaking TV is me being put in the helicopter, helicopter where yeah. my mom is at home watching TV. Oh. So she sees that. And she's trying to get in touch with my Are business. Are you saying when Mike Hilton walked in, things changed? <laughs> things changed. <laughs> so things changed. Things always change a little bit with Mike's around. So anyway, they flew me to uh, Alabama, Birmingham. But uh, I was fine and all from the wreck. Um, but that was the backstory scoop on what happened when somebody tried to stick a needle in my arm. I was not for it at that time. Let me ask you one question. Because, you know, you, you, we always wonder. And I'll, I'll say it this way. They... I saw the video last night of the race with the announcers. Of course, they get all excited when, of course, the car yeah. lifts and it flips. And then they got quiet. I mean, so quiet that even in the replay, they really didn't talk. I mean, I, and this they don't is know what to say because they don't know what if yeah. I'm OK or not. Yeah. And it was really kind of, you know, everybody kind of holding their breath. And then you pop out. And, and that was great. I mean, I even clapped and I knew the ending because I knew I was going to see yeah. it the next day. But what's it feel like? spinning like that is it going slow motion or is it so it's, fast it's, it's over um quickly? it's hard to explain when i'm hit a, when when you hit a wall as a race car driver you know you're going to hit the wall hard one time maybe twice if you're at dover you hit the top then you hit the bottom but at least you know it's one or two hits and it's over 
when I was flipping, I just remembered, God, is this ever going to end? I just really? kept flipping and kept flipping. And I felt like a boxer getting hit, you know, with the yeah. air again taken out of my lungs. So that was the biggest difference is I did not know when, when I was going to stop flipping. And it was just dark light, dark light, you know, from depending on which part of the race car actually hit and the ground. quiet, like you said. Very quiet. But the weirdest part about it, the picture that I have signed the most in my NASCAR career to this day, and I still sign up today, the picture I've signed the most, a photographer did a good job, and they have a picture of my car where the tail is up in the air and the nose is on, and I'm in midair. Yeah. I've signed that picture more than any other hero card, postcard, anything in my, my career, that one picture. Now, you said earlier that what you did was you hunkered down and you grabbed the bottom of the oh, steering yeah. wheel. A lot of times when you see the interior car cam, you know, the, the one thing the driver does is take they his hands off. Yeah, they let the hand. That's a new thing. Yeah. That's a new thing with the steering and all. They'll, they'll release it. I didn't. What, why was that? I mean, are they trying well, plus to Plus another thing, too. They don't want to break so their wrists. Yeah, right. it, 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 but another thing, too, back in those days, because I'm not sure if it's for that race or the next race, but I went and tested the Yates cars at Talladega, Dale's car and Elliott's car. And at Talladega, we'd run a 16 or a 17 and a half to one ratio steering box and those cars now especially even on intermediate tracks are running six to one eight to one a lot faster type of uh steering boxes so the steering wheel is much more reactive um in crashes and things but i've noticed that too they get ready to hit the wall and like they yeah i guess as a race car driver back in the day you always felt like you had a little bit of control if you had your hand on the wheel but now the thing seems to be just to let so it go I, I think you know People that get scared in a passenger car, they grab something and hold on to it, right? Whether right. it's the old crap handle or something. So I feel like people feel safer grabbing a hold on something. Maybe that's what's my because it's already I'm not thinking myself through it. It's just a, a habit. Okay, so it wasn't to keep something from moving or keep the tires. It was. From... I was trying to get my head away from the ceiling, so I was pulling down in the seat. Gotcha. Pulling my head the away. Other from thing the thing too makes sense. Now window nets are much better now than they were, but you've everybody seen the old videos of. Richard Petty flipping and you, your hand flies out yeah, to yeah, yeah. the window too. So if you got if you got something, you can anything. we talk about something else? I mean, we've talked about this flip enough. Y'all to bring it back to bad memories. <laughs> well, we got I'm another saying. flip coming. <laughs> that was uh, next but, year, Talladega. <laughs> yeah. So in 2004, you start the season with a top 10 finish at Daytona. What? Where'd you finish there? I don't know. Hell, I don't. You know how many times I've hit my head, Bill. This is why I do the research. It's the first <laughs> time I freaking ever did the research before we interview anybody, and uh, and I got no answers. So, from the 2004, question. things are rolling right along. We've got some good finishes. We're in the top ten in points. Sixth race in, you win. Yep, we we uh, we win. We're doing good. We win at Texas. Now, tell me about Texas. How was that race? Texas was great. Um, certain racetracks your driving style or your feel really fit hand in hand. And I'll put it like some golfers. So some golf courses you play as a golfer fit your golfing style more than others. Right. If, if it's a golf course that most of the holes go right to left, if you draw the ball, it fits it way better and to go the other way. Same thing with racing. Texas just fit my driving style. So whether it was in Why? The, What's your driving it's style? It's just the feel, fit. the feel that I like of the mile and a half of what I felt in the seat just correlated there. It, we were always fast there in the Xfinity car. We were always fast there in the cup car. So we were able to win that race in Texas. You beat Casey Kane, Mark Martin. 
Beat all those guys. Yeah, beat everybody. Yeah, we beat everybody. Right to the line, right. you know, which was great. Great finish. Great finish. And then we were able to make the chase that year. And we won our second race at California in 2004, um, the fall race. And that actually locked me into the chase for the top 10. And that was a big win as well. So um, 2004 was like the coming out party for Elliot Sadler from the competitive side. You know, we just had a lot of good things going on at Yates at the time. We, we understood the motors. We understood the bodies and the cars. And we just we showed a lot of speed. So it was fun being a part of the chase during that time. Now, I hate to bring it up again, but you get back to Talladega. Flip again. You flip again. Yeah, that was at the start finish line. Now, before we get to that, I, I want to ask one Why, question because I'm did, interested. Did we bring up all bad crap on this show? <laughs> did we, did we talk about anything positive? I have Elliot nothing to do. This <laughs> is your life. <laughs> this is not my syllabus. I did not write it. I have not See, seen it. I'm a lot better when I don't do you research. Usually when we Shep Moss is on here, y'all talk about fun stuff. But now, today, when he's I'm not raising here. taxes. Yeah, he won't, you know, yeah, yeah, tax rate. Let's don't start that. Well, but so before we even get to that, what has changed about Texas Motor Speedway that it's not as racy as it maybe was in 2004? So, you know, they've changed that track about three times, trying to create different styles of racing, not only for NASCAR, but also for IndyCar. Remember, IndyCar was a big draw for that as well. Right. So um, Eddie Gossage, who is one of my favorite people on the planet from a racing promoter standpoint, standpoint he did more for the fans probably than any other promoter. They just kept tinkering with the track trying to figure out how to make it good for both styles of racing so the last adjustment that they did uh the tunnel in turns one and two always created a big dip uh because the ground would be sinking some and the right. track would have whole you know dips in it where the indy cars would have a mess there so they just redid the track and they made it flat on one end and kept it banked on the other and it just kind of it hurt the racing as far as the arrow standpoint because of the, the way you had to set the car up so i liked it the old way better it was just you could move around more you had more you know there some great races back then it was texas. some great races back then well, the, the, other, the other part that makes it difficult at a place like texas when they constantly were tinkering with the racetrack it put goodyear in a position where it's really hard oh, yeah. to find a tire that has enough grip but also has a little bit of fall off so the racing is good but when you got one end of the track at those speeds, to, to Elliot's point, it's three and four. You can really be a, aggressive and attack in the new Texas. And in the new Texas one and two, it's a little bit of finesse involved, too. You can easily overdrive that corner. So, But that one thing people don't talk about enough is when you steady got a moving target, the, the tires are the only four things on the ground. It really put Goodyear in a situation where it's hard to find a good match for competition and safety when you keep... And, that, and look, that's what they're going through right now. If you listen to different drivers' podcasts, I listen to Denny Hamlin and stuff like I that. I do too. It's great. They're, they're having an issue with tires where Goodyear has to keep the tires safe. They have to protect their drivers because with this new car from NASCAR, the way it's built so rigid, if a, if a driver hits the wall now, it, it hurts. Yeah. So Goodyear has to have safety first. We, we, we can't have tires blowing out at 180, 190 miles an hour and you have concussions all, all up and down um, the lineup. But then you got to try to figure out how to make them have fall off and, and wear just enough where a certain car, you have comers and goers, they call it. And They're, for my wife who listens to the podcast, sometimes she needs definition of terms. Tire fall off. What is that? Tire fall off means as you run a race. So like the first 30 laps of the race, how much slower you get each lap. 
If you can create a tire that has more fall off, which means your car starts handling worse as you go, then you'll have certain setups and certain drivers that can manipulate it better. So you have guys that are falling and you have some guys that are faster as the run goes, which creates passing. But if you have such a Goodyear tire that is so good that it doesn't fall off, which means we can run the same speed lap after lap. With every car is running the same speed lap after lap, there's no passing. I'll give you all an example. Last year, the modified race in North Wilkesboro. Yeah. They, you guys, well, all the modified races, really, they have to save their tires at the beginning of the race, the beginning of the run, because there's so much fall off. The guy that saves the tires the most or the best at the beginning of the race usually has the best chance to win towards the end. Same, we wish we could do that in NASCAR, but it's such a big safety component to it, running 180, 190 miles per hour. Yeah, and that's that's makes a lot of sense but now what you're seeing is not a lot of tire fall off no tire fall off because we got to keep safety first mm. that has to be first and it's hard to do both but why wouldn't you have more fall off a softer tire maybe for the short tracks when well, you not going to have those kind of wrecks well i'm gonna tell you, you, you worry about. it used to be you know and that's not ellie can speak for himself another reason why i'm glad i'm not out there right now short tracks it doesn't you've seen some of these people get hurt and it looks like they barely clip yeah. The wall. I mean, it's like they barely even knocked the paint off the back of a car. And Alex Bowman and these people are getting Kurt these concussions. Bush. Kurt Busch. Not having what looked to be violent wrecks, but all that energy, instead of the car absorbing the energy, the energy is coming right in to and through the driver because the car is so rigid and and all that. I, I just don't – used to be you could say, well, hell, I can go to Martinsville. I can't get hurt at Martinsville. But the way the car is now, you can get hurt at Martinsville oh, really? or Richmond or anywhere else for that matter. Well, you remember Ryan Newman when we interviewed him in an earlier podcast episode. And, of course, all our podcast episodes are available in our library. When you look up Leaning Right and Turning Left with Sadler in the center, you can go listen to it. But he's an engineer from Purdue. And he was back then, before they started racing, saying there's some problems here. Here's where you know, you're taking a lot of force. You're not, you're not spreading it around the car. And so a lot of the impact, and he was going to have, like he said, I have a real problem with this car. Now we see him jumping in the car, and he spun out a couple times at the last race there at Darlington. Uh, I wonder, we got to get him back on and see what he thinks about now that he's experienced. So, but he got cracked ribs from what I'm hearing. So Ryan, out of his wrecks. Ryan used to do a really good job at some of our meetings we had back in the day, and he would present it from an engineering point of view and a driver. So our driver, us as a driver's union, we were not a union, but fraternity, we had our own engineer. And Ryan would present a lot of this stuff to NASCAR, but it was falling on deaf ears. Why? They knew better? They know. You ever, you ever done business with anybody that is their way or no way or their way or the highway? Uh, you just like Hermie every day, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, but it's just, they, he would try to present a lot of this stuff to him. He just yeah. it wouldn't work. He was saying a lot of the problem was it, the stiffness above the, uh, the hood and in, and in the frame. And remember, he was talking about that as well. And so I want to hear exactly what his perspective is now because he hadn't driven the car at that time. Now he's driven the car. Now he got injured. Uh, we're yeah. hearing he got some bruised ribs or something. I hope he's okay. But and especially he's coming up uh, in a couple of weeks here at uh, you know, or actually 10 days or so. Franklin County. Franklin County. You know Speedway. what that is? I do. It's in Callaway. <laughs> I know how to get there. Yeah. But I'll be late because I'm always late. Now, yeah. did you enjoy not talking about flipping cars? 
Yeah, I appreciate you bringing that up again. Yeah. So okay, we so moved to 2000. <laughs> so as we move forward through my career, we get to like 2007, and that's where my career. Hold it, hold it, hold it. We got one more Talladega. Right? Damn it, we've already talked about Talladega we enough. About We're moving on. One. Come how on, did, let's how move did on. The second one. Everybody y'all get wants drugged to down on the same crap too long. Let's move on to the next. Day. Everybody wants to know because like I was y'all talked about videos. tattoos. The last one for like 45 minutes. We got to move on. <laughs> we got to move on. Listen, if you want to, I love you people with tattoos. I know you do, but don't you, go you, to you, memory makers or Boyd Chevrolet. <laughs> you ain't getting a job. Not, not if uh, so. Not yeah, if we, Shep Miles is hired. The, the second one to flip at Talladega was nowhere near as dramatic. That was coming to the start finish line. That was just a long, slow flip that actually landed back on my tires. And cro- didn't you cross the finish? Line? I crossed the start finish line while in the air, but while still, yeah, still flipping. So you didn't have to do a Ricky Bobby and run. I did not run. I was not going to run and, and and do that. But okay. that one was definitely. Um, so what happened there? The air stressful. got underneath you? No, somebody hit me in the trial. Because, you know, you come into the checker flag, so we are knocking the crap out of each other. You're really forcefully bumping each other because what we've learned, uh, hitting each other is faster than just drafting. Right. So you finished 22nd. Where were you before the crash? I was Most in the top 10. Yeah. Easy. Yeah. Just That's Talladega, man. There's so many races there that we didn't get to finish. We thought we were going to get because – uh, the frustrating part about Talladega, your your finish usually is dictated by the people around you. And and you were uninjured. Did you meet the same doctor there? Uh, did he know better than I don't know? I can't remember. I, I can't remember the same doctor there. I'm not. It does. It doesn't stand out to me as bad as that. Um, the first one I went to. All right. So 2004 is also the first chase year. Is that right? Yep. I was part of the first ever chase. Yep. No, which was great. It was ten. And that guys was just on there. points. That, that was just a win on point. No, that was just on points, and we were in the top ten. And we made it to the chase, and, you know, all that went pretty well. And I learned a lot, and we learned a lot. But to be a part of the first chase is something nobody can ever take away. That's exactly that was a right. big accomplishment for our team. I was really proud of the hard work that went into that. All right, so you're still at Robert Yates, 2005, 2006. Yeah, and I'm kind of moving on to where my career really made a sharp left turn since Hermes sitting here and just kind of, kind of <laughs> turning left. So Robert Yates calls me in for a meeting. You know, Elliot, I need you to come to my office today. Usually we didn't get those kind of calls unless something was really, really had gone on. So I get in his office and he says, just going to have to let you know I'm going to have to sell the race team. And I'm like, huh? And what happened at that time, Toyota was coming into the sport. And they had offered Dale Jarrett so much money to go drive for Michael Walter Racing. So UPS and Dale Jarrett were going to leave Robert Yates Racing and go to Toyota, which was a huge deal for Dale. That is something he could never, he could not pass down. But that left us at one car, one sponsor. So when I met with Robert Yates and he was going to have to sell the race team and who he was selling it to, I was just like, Robert, you know I can't go drive for that man. He and I are not on the same page. Who's that? It was Jack Roush. Oh. He, he and I were never on the same page. Why? You don't have enough time on this podcast to to go with that. Let's just say we 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 don't we did not think alike. Did you did you have experience with Jack Roush? Yes, he did all the paperwork for the Wood Brothers. Oh, okay. He did all the paperwork for the Wood Brothers. Right, I guess we'll leave it right there, won't we? <laughs> He's looking at me like, move along. No, I'm, no, I'll make it okay. I'll make it quick for you. He did all the paperwork for the Wood Brothers. Jeff Smith was the business manager for Jack Roush, and he did all of the contracts for the Wood Brothers. When the Wood Brothers came to me uh, and wanted me to sign um, a long-term deal for them to keep a sponsor, I didn't want to sign it because I knew more opportunities were coming. 
bigger opportunities with maybe bigger teams, more financial back teams. Mm. And Eddie Wood promised me that if I, the only way the sponsor would come is if I would sign a long-term deal. So I signed a long-term deal, which was through Jeff Smith and Roush, and to keep Motocraft at the time. What I told Eddie that I didn't want to do that because I knew more opportunities were coming, different opportunities. So anyway, he made a deal with me. If another opportunity came, he would let me out the contract. Okay? Right. When another opportunity came, Robert Yates with the M&Ms, and Eddie said, no problem. Um, I'm going to let you out the contract. I'm getting this stuff straight with Jeff Smith, which is Jack Roush. Well, when it went to them, they said, no, they're not going to let me out the contract because they're stealing DeWalt from us and taking it to Yates with Elliot. That's one of our sponsors. So I told him I would sign a piece of paper saying it wasn't DeWalt. I couldn't tell him who it was at the time because that's the way sponsors work. Sure. But it wasn't DeWalt. Didn't want DeWalt. It has nothing to do with them. Those kind of, So they would not let me out of the contract. So you just had to be a clear, Your family not had Eddie Wood doing this. No, this was no, Roush. this was not Eddie Wood. This but was, you guys have been sponsored by DeWalt before. Hermie had. I had. Okay. So, you know, no, this was not the Wood Brothers at all. They yeah. were stuck in the middle. So I had to make a deal with Jack Roush to forfeit my funding, my funds, my money earnings for the rest of that year to get out of the contract. Wow. So that was the only way they would yeah, let me yeah. out. So that let me tell you. <laughs> I don't blame so you. So you wanted to ask me, so I told you. <laughs> you want to go back to flipping the car? All right. So, <laughs> so that's why um, when you know Robert met with me and he told me who he was selling his team to, I did not want to be a part of it. So that's when he let me go uh, explore my options, and I was going to get into 19 car for Ray Everham. So before we get to that, though, you know, Robert Yates, I mean, he's like, um, you know, he's a pinnacle. Uh, he's a... A stalwart in NASCAR racing. He is. He's why? Great. Why would he have sold his team? I mean, it's because he had lost his sponsorship, and we were going to one car at the same time everybody else in the sport was going to four and five cars. It was just a tough deal, and they made the the engine deal together. They were into uh, Roush and Yates were in the engine development together, right. and Robert was getting some age on him, and Doug didn't want to run a race team. He wanted to do the engine stuff. So for them, it was a great decision. For the for for them, it was just tough for. You know, some of us on the race team that we we all love the people that love Robert Yates always didn't like Jack Roush. And you loved Robert Yates. I love Robert. And Yates. I know your brother loves Robert Yates because oh, yeah. well, bought engines Robert for Robert gave me team. the only chance I ever in a and probably may not know this whole story either. But Doug had called me because back in those days it, it was very time consuming and boring at times to test at Talladega. Gary Beveridge and all Elliott's team with Yates, they were going to go to Talladega and test, and they asked me to go. So, And I told Robert, I said, I'd like to have a chance to run a Daytona 500 one time. And I had no shot in the other. I drove down one morning and met Robert Yates at, at the Waffle House at exit 36, and we talked about what they wanted to do in the test coming up. And basically, they said, if you do this testing, uh, I'll sell you one of our Speedway cars and I'll lease you an engine at a very fair rate so you can go run the Daytona 500. So I went and tested at Talladega for two or three days with them. And then the following year, um, they sold me a Speedway car, which was... For how much? I don't remember. Uh, but a good but, but a good price. You couldn't... I mean, what I, would an average price for a Speedway car be? I mean, if I had to guess, I probably paid 50 or 60 grand for it. And it had... 
$300,000 worth of technology in the car. Yeah. I mean, is I mean, they Yates had 20 years of building speedway cars. So they I paid for the car, but no way I could have paid for all the engineering and stuff that went in it. And and what was just as important as that, back in those days at Daytona, you had a practice and qualifying engine, you had another engine for the qualifying races on Thursday and another engine for the Daytona 500. And they made a deal, you know, but, you know, Robert just came up and we met at the Waffle House and he said, we want you to go test. What, what, what do you want? You know, and it was, uh, it was great. And I've always been um, indebted to Robert and Doug for that opportunity. Cause I'd never, and Dr. Anderson, Mike Anderson, a friend of mine and Elliot's was involved at the ownership of our race team at the time. And me and him had an opportunity to go run in the Daytona 500. We were the fastest car on speed, not locked in uh, the first day of qualifying. And, and um, we, uh, I mean, created a lifetime memory for me that I never would have had, had it not been for Robert Yates. So I, I got to tell the story. Um, Yates is horsepower, right? They've always yeah. been famous. So while I was driving the 21 car, Roush was doing our motors. Well, when I signed the deal to go race for Yates, Ford let me go test because I was going from a Ford to a Ford. So Ford would let me go test with the Yates cars at Kentucky. Ford had rented the Kentucky track out. So every Wednesday you could go test. So I would go test with the 28 guys with Yates's motor in it. And I'd be like, oh, my God. The first time <laughs> I got on, I'm like, holy cow, this thing will fly. So that moved me to 2003. We're qualifying for the Daytona 500. So this is my first time ever in a Yates car qualifying. So go through the gearbox. I'm going in the back straightaway. Come off turn four. I take the green. Go through turns one and two. When I get on the back stretch, the engine was going uh, like it changed pitch, which never happens. Changed pitch, and I'm just kind of getting set back in the seat. But we qualify on the front row. They always qualified up front at Daytona, yeah. Talladega. And I came in, I was like, man, oh, my God, the motor did this, this. And Doug was just kind of like, <laughs> gave me the thumbs up. But it was, uh, they were really into that part of it, and they loved it, which led me to, you know, leads us to the story of this, that I think they wanted to get out of the car-owning business and just get into the, you know, the, the, the engine part, the development part for Ford, because they were building then at the time, not only engines for Ford and NASCAR, but also the IMSA and SCCA. They were doing all that stuff. I remember the test at Talladega, you know, t back in those days in the cars, we had like a manual, like a rotary style tachometer. Yeah. But for the test, Robert put a digital tachometer on the steering column. So as I'm going, cause he wanted to make sure I hit the shifted at the same place every time, but also in the corners, don't move the steering wheel because you know, it, it was a, if it, if it RPMs dropped one, one thousandths, I could see it. Mm -hmm. And so doing all that. And then uh, at the test, so much detail went into those cars, not only just the body, and but Gary Beveridge and that team, the underneath, the things they work, and it had to be a, they would change one piece of sheet metal under the bottom of the car, and you had to go run it two more times to verify it versus ABA, you know, to run it back to what it was, very methodical. But I learned a great deal uh, from those in those couple of days. Well, I know the two of you really think a lot of the Yates family. Oh, love them. Uh, our engines originally for the Sadler Stanley Racing Team yeah. came from Yates. Doug Yates, Doug yeah. Yates, yep. yep. And he built them for us, and that was mm -hmm. great. And yep. we did really well with them. Mm -hmm. And so that, that that's just an amazing thing that you build those relationships. 
in spite of sometimes uh, not building relationships with people that have names rhymed with the thing. Couch. The thing that I would say about Yates <laughs> never having driven for him is they were always all in for everybody on the team and treated all the team members, the the drivers, everybody. They were just the kind of people they were. And with some of the other teams that I drove for, some of them, I guess, Elliot drove for too, they were more concerned about the business or tried to manipulate the business side more so than the racing side and the performance side. And Robert always kind of, you know, kind of ran his deal like all for one, one for all. So, We're a big family. So it's two different ways to run a race team in racing. And this is still true today. So as a business owner, some teams, let's say, let's make it round numbers easy to get. $10 million sponsorship. We get a $10 million sponsorship to run this season. Some of the team owners would take the $10 million, take $2 million off the top, and only put $8 million in the, in the team itself and put $2 million in their pocket. So they would make $2 million. Some team owners, I'm not calling names, but some team owners do that. If you gave Robert Yates $10 million, he's going to take $11 million and put it into the, into the team and then whatever the funds are or the winnings you got from the races is what we split and shared, and that's how we made our money. Like he just looked at it differently. He's not the only one. There's other ones that do it the same way. But that's the two different type of owners that we have in the sport still to this day. So, so now you got me interested in that. Um, you have the Wood Brothers, historic race team. Great people. But Love now them. you have Roush's involvement when you're there. Now you have, what, Hendrick uh, basically props them? Pinsky, no, no Pins they're Pinsky. Pinsky, okay. Yeah. I mean, so... Why do they have that involvement in the Wood Brothers team? Is it just because they're so small and they want to keep them going? Or, so or is actually, there a business model there? Eddie Wood and Lynn Wood were racers. Right. They were not business guys, contract guys. That was not their thing. Glenn and Leonard, Eddie and Lynn, they, all they want to do was race. Their, their love and passion was for being at a racetrack, working on a race car, those things. They didn't want to handle the paperwork. So since they already had a contract, like an engineering agreement and a motor agreement with Roush, because that's where they got their engines, they just went ahead and added another agreement to it where uh, Jeff Smith would do all of their paperwork, not only for me, but with, with the crew members, with the sponsors, with any, any kind of thing they did. Jeff Smith ran all of the paperwork for the Wood Brothers so they could just race. So do the Wood Brothers own the team, or does that... Yes. Do they hand over some of the ownership to No, uh -uh. they own the Penske? team. They just part of the contract stuff that they have. Now, I don't know what their ownership is now with Penske. I would say the Wood Brothers own the team, but Penske does all of their paperwork still with them and helps place the driver and does the engineering stuff with them and that, that whole thing. Okay. All right. Yeah. Well, that cleared that up, because I've always wondered. I'm, I mean, the one thing I think in Southside that we worry about is we don't want that team going away. Yeah. I mean, that's like your Washington Redskins up in Northern Virginia, right. D.C. For us, it's the Wood Brothers. Yeah. And so we're always I, wondering if, if everything's going to be okay, how you keep it going. And I think the Wood sure Brothers have done a really good job. Again, I'm a fan of theirs, so I'm, on, Me too. I'm biased. Me too. They've done a really good job. Even when they had to move their operation to Charlotte, they still kept things going at the museum. They still keep the 21 still always has that look that it's always had with the font of the – number and the paint schemes they've really stayed true to their upbringing and you know their roots and heritage and everything they have in stewart virginia and i think fans really appreciate that especially fans from virginia and you got to go to that museum your car is in, there, in there from there. bristol that's right so you can put your hands on that car and so for everybody that's in stewart go and do that now let's move on 
as you moved on. Okay. You moved on a lot of areas. I mean, yeah. you're like the football player that's that, you know, had, had a lot of different with, homes. Yeah. But well, it's usually reasons. It's usually reasons for, for, for most of them. <laughs> so when Roush, I mean, um, when Roush was going to buy Yates and Robert met with me and told me we were going to sell the team, he was giving me an opportunity to go do something else. And I hooked up with Ray Everham to go drive the 19 car. But you had lost a lot of money because you just turned over all your winnings, basically. I did Roush. that from that was from going from the 21 to the 38. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Then the going 38 to the 19 was um, they were having an issue with Jeremy Mayfield. He was getting out of the car. Was they that during Mayfield, that. Mayfield stuff? We're going to pass right on through that. Gotcha. And um, so I was going to drive the 19 car. What I didn't know when I got a 19 car was all the stuff that was going on with Ray getting ready to sell the team. Um, George Gillette was going to buy it and come in. And when that happened, that whole ter- that whole team just turned upside down, and I was in the middle of that whole tornado and hurricane. So they were running that. Dodge. Dodge had gotten yeah, back Dodge in the Yeah, Dodge was a big part of it. I mean, when I signed the contract to drive for them, Dodge sent me one of those brand-new trucks, those trucks, the SRT trucks that were yeah. so fast. So yeah. they sent me one as like a signing bonus. Which I thought was with the Hemi in it. Yes. Yeah. That thing would fly. I had the I had the that station thing was, wagon. That thing that thing was faster than the race car. <laughs> <one. laughs> Dude, I had the station wagon. I can't remember the XRT. Yeah. And, and that thing flew. That's my first reckless driving ticket. And I got almost a uh, con, uh, endangering a child because I had my niece in the back and she wanted to see how fast it went on a highway. So I'll I'll, I'll do I got a, a bad a ticket. A quick for that. three or four minute talk of the 19 car, and then we're moving on. From the 19 car. <laughs> now, so, Casey Kane is your is your was, was my teammate gotcha. before he left to go to uh, Red Bull and then to Hendrick and all. He got the hell out, which he should. We were all trying to get the hell out. Once um, George Gillette came in, he uh, was trying to run it 100% like a business. And we were running used parts at every race. We were running show cars. One of the cars I ran at Bristol was a show car that was actually in a museum. They brought it out. But we would buy used parts from other race teams and run it. There was a many a time. Why? He was running it like a business. He was taking the money, putting it in his pocket. Oh, he was the first kind of guy you you described. He was one of those guys. Gotcha. So it would, most day, most weeks, we didn't know if we would race or not because they never paid their engine bill. So they would actually come and block our trucks in where we could not leave the shop. So it'd be like, we're going to Michigan this weekend. So it'd be Tuesday. We wouldn't know if we were actually going to Michigan or not. We were going to be in default because they hadn't paid their engine bill. So the engine builders would be over there blocking their... But this is a razor blade guy, right? No, no, he, no, uh, uh-uh. he's the guy that owned like the Montreal Canadians and he owned like a soccer team. Owned a ski resort in Vail. Owned a ski resort. Oh, not, like he was a razor money, guy. He was a money guy. Okay. So, but he didn't pay us most of the time. He didn't pay his crew members in the shop. He didn't pay his drivers. And that's the worst thing you can do in any community, but especially the NASCAR community is start to be known for not paying your bills. So he didn't pay his bills. We run used parts. We had used cars. So that was a tough part of my life. So thank God I moved on from that to race for Kevin and Delana Harvick in the uh, truck series. I ran some truck races for them. And then went and on look, to right around the, the corner here car. at Fosho, there's a picture of you in Victory Lane at Pocono Leading when you won the, the truck race for Kevin Harvick and why it was a baby. And you have told me several times off air, off that That's that race. truck race win was Revived the, was one yeah. of the biggest wins of your career. Why? It is. So that race, my, my career was ending in NASCAR. The 19 car was just going out of control. They 
Casey Kane had finally got away from it. Paul Menard had finally got away. Scott Riggs had got away. I mean, it was uh, it was going down in flames, and we were part of it. But, but, so, but, but hold on one second. Ray I'm trying Abraham, to move on from this. I understand, but Ray Abraham Ray, was a name. I know, but he started this this team on a big sold fanfare. It, but he sold it. He's just not to one George committed. Gillette. Yeah. yeah, but he just didn't commit long term to stuff like that. He, I mean, he was not the owner anymore. He, he didn't have. The, he didn't have anything to do with it. He was he just a pulling, name. He wasn't pulling the financial strings. Because yeah. you guys were George like the hottest Gillette. team in the beginning. We were when Casey Kane was winning all those races. All the those dodges looked good, right? But the color schemes were sold great. It. And you see, we were not dodge at that time when George bought it. We went to Ford. You remember? He had like the flaming numbers. You remember a little bit now, but you know when we had Ray Everham on it, he didn't want to talk about it either. So it's just no need, no need to talk about it. So we're moving on. Fine. So we're moving on. So you're hey, so, he's moving on or he's leaving. You yeah. Can't. So um, I didn't know I was going to be was such sitting, an investigative report here today. So I knew my career was going down. Okay. And I was sitting at a driver's intros one day and I just happened to end up on the bench beside Harvick. And he was talking about his back problems at the time and that he didn't know if he was going to be able to run his truck this weekend or his Xfinity car that weekend. So I told him, I said, hey, you ever need a driver? I'll drive it. And I said, I'll drive it for free. I don't want you to pay me. But if you need my help with anything like that, you let me know. So the next week, he called me, him and his business manager, Josh, who we're great friends with, um, called me and said, look, would you drive our truck at Pocono for the inaugural truck race at Pocono? Sure. <laughs> Be glad to drive it. So they said, look, if you want to bring a sponsor on board to help raise some money, because I'm doing it for free, you go right ahead. We don't really have a sponsor for that, that race. So through my friendship with Dale Earnhardt Jr. and Kelly uh, Earnhardt, uh, which he's a miller now, they had a uh, GT Vodka sponsorship with Greg Sachs that they had to do something with. So Kelly called me and said, look, can we put this on your truck? Sure. Good as our family's been to each other and Dale Jr. and I have been friends together, sure we'll put GT Vodka on my truck. So that's how it all came together, and I went to Pocono, and we won the freaking race. Yeah. Sat on the pole and won the race. So I won the inaugural truck race at Pocono. And that one race set the stone for me to kind of have my second chance of racing. That was my giving. God had given me a second chance and led me to Kevin and Delana Harvick. Now, you'll never hear me say one bad word about Kevin Harvick, ever. He and Delana gave me that second chance. They um, let me race in their Xfinity car the following year, ran some truck stuff for them. We actually won a truck championship um, with like four different drivers racing them. So that was a huge opportunity that got me going in that direction. Wow. And you know what? I really didn't yep. know that. Mm -hmm. So it's funny how stuff works. Yeah. So we're, I'm at Kevin Harvick's, and we have a great season. We finished second in the points, but, man, we had a great season run up front. Kevin comes to me. Hey man, I'm gonna sell my, I'm gonna sell my stuff. I'm like God, I just went through this with Robert Yates a couple years ago. <laughs> he said, No, it, you you want me to sell it? This was 2011. You you want me to sell? It. I'm selling it to Richard Childress. He's getting, you know, he's got his grandsons coming along. He wants to build his Xfinity program back up, like like Harvick used to have. And uh, I promise you, this is where you want to be. So we. So Harvick sold all this stuff to Childress, and I went to Childress. And had, that was 2012. We won a bunch of races, had a good year. Everything, everything went well. It was a great season. Hi, folks. This is Hermie Sadler. Thanks for listening to our all-new podcast, Leaning Right and Turning Left with Sadler and the Senator. I hope you are enjoying the show as much as Senator Stanley and I 
enjoy bringing it to you. Whether you're a family traveling together or a truck driver hauling freight up and down the highway, I hope you will take the time to visit one of our Sadler Travel Plaza locations in Virginia and North Carolina. Sadler Travel Plaza locations are licensed dealer locations for pallet travel centers. And we also carry Shell Motiva Petroleum products for our four-wheel friends. We pride ourselves on providing one-stop shopping for service, food, and entertainment. Our food options include Five Guys Burgers and Fries, Quiznos, Dairy Queen, Hermie Sadler's Show Bar and Grill, Victory Lane Restaurant, Hunt Brothers Pizza, Dunkin' Donuts, and much, much more. Our locations include Sadler Travel Plaza in South Hill, located off I-85 at exit 12. The Sadler Travel Plaza of Emporia, which is conveniently located on exit 11B off I-95, and Sadler Travel Plaza on Highway 58 in Suffolk. We also have our North Carolina location, Sadler Travel Plaza in Dunn, North Carolina, that's exit 75 off I-95. We appreciate all of our customers, and Bill and I appreciate you listening to Leaning Right and Turning Left with Sadler and the Senator, powered by Pacematic. Hey, this is Bill Stanley, Hermie Sadler's sidekick on this podcast. When I'm not in Richmond at the Capitol or doing this podcast, my real job for the past 27 years is as a trial attorney with the Stanley Law Group. Here at the Stanley Law Group, we represent our clients in every courthouse in the Commonwealth. No problem is too small for us to solve. No case is too big for us to win. Whether it's criminal charges, traffic offenses, civil disputes, litigation matters of any sort, we handle it all. We make sure that we treat every client like family because they are to us. Your problem is our problem. Your success is our success because we hate to lose more than we love to win. And believe me, we win a lot. Don't believe me? Go ask Hermie. I'm his favorite lawyer, and he hates lawyers. So give us a call at 540-721-6028 and let us help you. Or visit our website at www.vastanleylawgroup.com. That's www.vastanleylawgroup.com. At the Stanley Law Group, we'll make sure we're the lawyers that you swear by and not at. And we're back. We're here at Fosho Restaurant. There's about six police officers that have entered through the front door. They better have a f-ing warrant. That's all I'm saying. Ooh, I swear. I just swore. Right here. This, the yeah. guy's right here. It, it was him. You better have a warrant. It was, it was him. <laughs> this guy. Those guys come in. All right. Create a distraction. I got to get out of here. Yeah. 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 So, all right. So, so. Keep us going, man. I mean, so this that is was great. 2012. We're running for Childress. Everything's going great. I love my team. One main financials contracts because of their board was always one year at a time. And in racing, that is really tough when you only have one year worth of funding. So each year it would come up. Well, then, which, which people don't really think about in NASCAR terms. If your contract runs out in November, you start worrying about it in June. In June. So <laughs> you start wondering. So boy, it, One Main was a big sponsor for you. I love mean, them. A, a Mary lot, McDowell is my one of my favorite people in the world. A lot of pictures of you in the One Main uh, right. fire suit. So I'm driving their car. I was with them at um, Yates back in the day. I was with them at Kevin Harvick Racing. I was with them at Childress where their budget got cut. When their budget got cut, Childress said, man, that ain't enough money for us. You know, we, we take $5 million, You only have three. So I lost my ride at Childress. Wow. And had to go to Gibbs. And I got over there with Gibbs, which was a great race team at the time. But I was not talented enough to drive Kyle Bush's setups. And I'm going to go ahead and go on radio and say that. <laughs> I cannot drive that kid's setups. He's 
He's a he's a freak. That dude can drive some stuff. All right. So what's the difference? I mean, what's the setup? It's too loose for me. Oh really? It's too loose for me. I I was driving with my hair on fire. It was just fine with him. So every time people badmouth him, I'm like, he's a bad dude, you know, which people can't see. See, I can watch LeBron James play basketball, and you can see it. I can watch Tiger Woods hit a golf ball, and you can see it. But on the racing, when you're watching it, all you see is the car. You can't really see what they're really doing inside the car and what, the, what their feel is. Are you saying is. in some ways during that time, that era, that Kyle Busch was – Carrying carrying that team in cars. I was saying that Cal um, Joe Gibbs Racing made everybody in the Xfinity Series at that time drive Kyle Busch's setup. Okay, we didn't care, Hermie, that you thought the car was loose or tight. This is what he's winning with. You got to figure out how to drive it. Right. Well, I'm sorry, I can't. I can't hold a golf club like you got. We don't have the same golf clubs. You know, I don't hit a baseball like you hit. So I couldn't figure that out. So anyway, thank God. After it all was said and done. Everything led me to racing for junior motorsports, which was childhood friends. We've had so much fun together. And then when our paths really crossed and um, I could end my career at junior motorsports for those last three years and end on a high note and being competitive, was um, that, that was a big deal for me to be able to do that. At some point in time, you go from full-time cup to what is now Xfinity. It was yep. Bush. Yep. What made you make that change? I mean, what happened? What was the catalyst there? So when the whole 19 car thing was going on and we were going down in flames, my uh, worth or my rating of what I am as a driver was going down also. And so I had a decision to make. And I talked to Dale Jarrett about this a lot. Dale Jarrett was in Cup at one time early in his career driving like the Friedlander car. And he actually decided to go back to Xfinity in a higher level equipment, get his name back up and then come back. And he got in a great job, a, a great deal with the Wood Brothers and the Yates and his career took off. So my decision was take our mediocre or low end cup team and ride around in the back or go race Xfinity and be competitive and, and have a chance to win every week. And I just decided to go, you know, drive the Xfinity cars and do it that way. And you realized also you could race Make a good living and actually and have a little home. bit of a life. And be home with my kids, which and, was a big part of it. Yeah, and you were winning, too. Yeah, we won. We won a bunch of races. We were part of the chase. We had a chance to win a couple championships. And um, and, and I'll talk about it a little bit on here. That one year while I was leading the race at Homestead with three laps to go to win the championship, right. and that freaking piece of crap, Ryan Priest, put me in the wall, cost me a championship with three laps to go, I don't know if I ever got over that. I raced one more year after that, but it wasn't the same. Kind of like the Carl Edwards thing. You try so hard, you try so hard, you do all these things, you do all these things, you put yourself in the right position, some freak happens, and you know it's all gone. It just got to the point where it wasn't worth it to me anymore to race. You know, and, and looking at all the video that I looked at last night, one of the pieces of video that I saw was your interview after the homestead. After that race, you were in the lead. Priest wasn't even on the lead lap, or he, was it? He was, but he didn't understand that we were racing for a championship behind, and we had caught him from a lap behind. And he was racing your heart. And he was racing us, and it cost me the race. And that, now when I see him complaining about stuff on TV about other people racing, I'm sitting there thinking to myself, you're the jackass that started all this. <laughs> but anyway, I wasn't, you know, anyway. Yeah. And that's got to be tough. I mean, that's it, just It's be hard. It's tough. And that's why uh, I'll, you'll never see me in a race car again, ever. 
Really? I, I, yeah, I've, I've, I've done my best. I've followed my dreams. I've tried to put myself in situations. And now it's time for me to help other people achieve their dreams. That's why I do the stuff I do with the coaching and the mentoring and those kind of things. That's why when you two, we talk to me about running a modified, it has nothing to do with you two. I have just cut that part of my life off because of certain things that happened towards the end of my career. I don't want to get back in a race car. I have no ambition to do that under any circumstances. Kind of left a bad taste in your mouth? Is it that... did. Of course it did. Yeah. So you, you work for some your your whole life and you get down to you know, three, three laps. laps. This, this past weekend at um, Darlington, you had a throwback weekend. And of course, one of the bigger stories was Carl Edwards showed back right. up and uh, the mystery surrounding about all that. But I think Kenny Wallace or somebody made a comment on social media that looking back now, Carl probably walked away because he felt like it was a bogus caution that cost him a championship it at did. Homestead. 100% at Homestead. So he said, he okay, wrecked. I can't control all this, but guess what I can do? Yeah, and go home. I can go home. Yeah. And yep. it's, the same, it's the same thing because you, know, you put your heart and soul into it for so long, and then when the opportunity's there, something outside of it changed the outcome. Is it like a betrayal of the sport to you? No, it's just that it was frustrating. And then how long can I live a frustrating life like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. So what, what people don't know is when I was driving the 19 car, it was so bad. I honestly felt like I was standing on the edge of a cliff every day, every night, and was just hoping somebody would please push me off the edge. Please. I mean, it was that stressful because you have to eat, sleep, drink any professional sport that you're a part of. Yeah. So certain situations that you get in – Man, it's tough. It's tough to carry that load with you all the time. You had talked about, you know, that one day when you kind of just, you were trying to find your son's game on the radio and so, it just hit you. So, look, what, and I, I am not making this up. My best friend was with me, Brian Roberts. We were sitting in the bus at mid Ohio. Both my son and my daughter are playing in an all star tournament on the weekend. You remember, now I coach their games during the week. So I'm there for every game. Well, on the weekends, I got to go to work, right? I got to go race. So this is the second year that this had happened that I had missed Wyatt's games. And I am sitting there in the bus listening to trying to find their games on the radio and the technology is not great. I'm hearing every other word. And it hit me, I mean, just that quick that I'm not doing this anymore. Like I'm just don't, I'm my, my heart is not here. You know, my heart's at home with my wife and my kids. My head is not 100% into this. I'm worried about what's going on at home. And that Monday, that was on a Saturday. That Monday, I went into Kelly Earnhardt's office and said, look, this is where I'm at. And she said, I don't blame you 100%. I mean, she was so great about it. And this is what we're going to do. And this is how we're going to finish your career. And we're going to do it the right way. And that, but it hit me like a ton of bricks where I'm just like, I, I have pursued my, the way I looked at it, Bill, I had pursued my dreams long enough. Um, it was now time to put my dreams uh, to the side and go help, you know, my kids and kids and stuff in our area try to pursue their dreams. And, and that's 100% the way I look at it. And that's what I also want to talk about as we do. First, uh, when you go on YouTube and you type in your guys' names, I mean, there's a lot more videos about you guys than there are about me. Just a couple more. But uh, there's some really, really heartwarming videos that I want everybody to at least listen to on this podcast. They can go to YouTube and they can listen to it. But the first one I want to 
drop in right here because what I want to do is transition out of the racing and talk about family and also about your coaching and how you influence children, young men and women. Uh, you see it on your social media pages. It's really uh, inspiring for me. Uh, but the first one I want to do since only a week ago, it was Mother's Day, even just a couple of days ago. And I know uh, your family means so much uh, to you as much as they mean to me. But I found this interview and it was called Hermie, Elliot and Bell. And it's with you all. It's about an eight minute cut. Uh, it's obviously from the Speed Channel. Is yep, that about speed right? Channel. Yeah. Yep. Uh, you guys look a lot younger than you do right now. Thank you. Uh, you look a lot skinnier. It's the lighting. Yeah, it's you look a lot skinnier uh, in that video than you do right now. Yeah. Um, and your hair was dark and it, and it was more full. Uh, and you got a little emotional there too, which kind of made me tear up last night. But I want everybody right now, as we transition to Sadler, the family, to listen to this. It's about six to eight minutes. Listen to this interview. Uh, you can go on YouTube and see it, but let's listen to this interview of what family means to the Sadlers, and especially these two young gentlemen, what their mom means to them. Welcome back to Richmond International Raceway, one of the hometown favorites, so to speak, having a great run here today. Elliot Sadler doing a superb job in the fifth position. Talk about a great guy. He and his brother Hermie both. You know, they're local Virginia boys from the small town of Emporia. And if you spend any time at all in Emporia, everybody knows the Sadlers. Elliot, if you could describe your mom in just one sentence, what would it be? She's just so laid back, so easy going. I think easy going is the, the, the best thing I could describe my mom, you know. She never seems to be rattled. She's so strong no matter what type of situation we're in. So uh, she's just great personality and, uh, you know, we try to feed off that. All right, Hermie, let's have some fun. How much grief did you cause your mother? Well, <laughs> you probably have to ask her that. Um, I took advantage of her from time to time, but, <laughs> but I always knew what I had to face if I didn't do you know, that's the thing I think Elliot will say the same thing. You know, we didn't want to disappoint her. You know, so whatever we did, we did it in a way that I think she'd be proud of us. Life was not boring with them, but they were always kind of got along and kind of um, stood in line when they were supposed to. When they were supposed to straighten up, they straightened up. But uh, they teased each other uh, often. Now, Elliot, were you the tattletale type where you would us? Uh, Tell on Hermia. I was definitely the, the, the title tell. They, Hermia and my sister Missy used to beat me up all the time when my mom and dad left you the house. That, so I, uh, <laughs> I always got on mine when she got back home. Like, please don't leave me anymore. So uh, you know, I was the spoiled brat. I'm the, I'm the young. I was the mistake in the family. It, that's what my mom said. Unless I do something good, then I was the surprise. When he was little, he was cute and sweet, and they spoiled him. When he got a little bit older, he was. Um, demanding and spoiled and got his way. He didn't, he didn't have to do piano lessons. I didn't have to do piano lessons. All I have to do is say, Mom, I don't want to do that. Now, Elliot, though, passed him up in height, even though Hermie's six years older, so yes. that probably caused some controversy in oh, the teenage years. Oh, very much, because they were all very sports-oriented. Or, uh, Had no idea. I don't know what happened to Elliot. He just got fertilizer in his shoes and just grew. Grew. He outgrew me by the age of 10. I mean, he was taller than I was, you know, at that age, but... Uh, we had a lot of fun, really. Even though there's an age difference, I mean, we still had a lot of fun and did a lot of stuff together. Did Mom ever have to break up fights between the two of you once you got taller than Hermie? Well, I don't think, I think uh, we knew not, not to fight in front of her because she ever told my dad. <laughs> you know, if she ever said, you wait till your daddy gets home, we knew we were in trouble. So we never really pushed it that far. We'd wait till she leave and then we'd go back at it. They said they would never fight in front of you. Right, right. And they'd never talk ugly. And sometimes, but you could hear them in a room and I opened the door and, and they'd go, 
they just shut right up because, you know, they didn't want me to hear what they were saying to each other. What part of Hermes' career do you look at and think, gosh, I'm so proud to be his mother? Not only since he was born, but from day one for his choices, um, his work with autism, his love of people, and I guess his honesty. He, he doesn't ever talk bad about people, and, and he's always been that way. So that has been a, a, just a, a all-over warming feeling for a mama. Now what about Elliot? What moment are you most proud of him? That he's wanted to come home after traveling and being and um, and mainly that he um, has come around to the same thing. Um, Gosh, are you okay? Um, what are you doing? Is, is things good with you? What can I do to help you? And, and you know, you don't know they've got that in them until you maybe need it and it just comes out pouring. What can I do for you? want to send out a quick get well to Belle Sadler. Of course, Belle is the mother of Elliot and Hermes Sadler, and she's on the road to recovery following a battle with cancer. Fans might not know that your mother has been battling through cancer. How has she been able to fight through it? She's been an inspiration, you know, um, and when people ask, that's what I say. He says, what have you learned, you know, about this uh, situation with your mom? It's just, it's just the way that she's handled it. She hadn't complained, she hadn't fussed, and there's been plenty of times when we've been over there to see her when she was, you know, laid up and, you know, she would always just say, I'm just resting, you know, but you could just tell. I see you shaking your head, Elliot. Oh man, she was just so strong, like Hermie said. I mean, the way she battled through all of it, um, she never complained one time, never, why me? Just, you know, I'm going to beat this. We're going to do the best we can with it. We're going to move on. We're going to get this behind us and have a great life. And it just, uh, it changed the way I look at a lot of things. And that's why I live here in Emporia, Virginia. You know, I've, I've wanted to live in Charlotte, and that's where racing's at, but I'm so close to home here, and I'm, my mom and dad's house is right there. I can go see them anytime I want. And after that happened, that put a lot of things in perspective, like Hermie said, that, you know, I want to be here around my family. Hermie said, not once have you complained. I, well, maybe to their daddy. <laughs> well, it wouldn't have done any good. I mean, we've had, I've had good days. I'm not going to tell you, I've had bad days bad days that you didn't get off the sofa days um, but in the end for, from day one I thought I was gonna be well I thought somewhere down this road I'm gonna get over this and I'm gonna do other things I'm gonna help with my grandchildren and I'm going to race this and in this little small community we've I've had a lot of people pray for me my family has gathered around me just I can't tell you the support and it's just been positive. He said he put the cancer ribbon and the autism ribbon on both sides of his name because it was closest and most important to him and it was the last thing he was going to think of every time he stepped in that race car. Ooh, I didn't hear that. Ooh, so that makes it more special. But when I saw it there, it's just, it, he hadn't even told me. I just looked up and I saw it there. I said, oh gosh, he's thinking of me. It puts me in a good frame of mind when I get in that car every Sunday and what I have to do, that I'm racing and I got a great life and it's a great job, but my family at home is number one to me. And now I'm going to put you two on the spot for a minute. If there's something that you wanted to tell your mother that you haven't told her, what would it be? You can go first. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I'm certain that we don't tell her we love her enough. 
but that'll be it. Yeah, I'm with him on that. Probably don't do that enough. You know, we're from a great family, but we don't maybe sometimes express our feelings enough. But yeah, Dad'll thank you. Is it probably the way you guys were raised and got to put up the hard shell sometimes to get through those ups and downs? This business uh, that we're in makes you tough in a hurry. You know, this this type of stuff, and you know, in your family, and in the Mother's Day, and all that. Again, it just kind of you know, put you back where you're supposed to be. And that's what makes it great. One thing about it, we better spend Mother's Day with it too. And that's another rule. You know, and that's one thing, we've always raced on Mother's Day somewhere, whether it's short tracks or now we're racing at Darlington and stuff like that. And I know it's a Saturday night race, but we better be home Sunday morning to go to church. So that's, uh, that's one rule too. When I asked Hermine Elliott if there was something they had never told you before that they wanted you to know, what would it be? And Hermie, looked at me and he said we, we probably don't tell her that we love her enough probably don't say it often enough and Elliot started to tear up as well and they just really wanted you to know how much they oh, love you gosh we you know every Christmas and every Mother's Day every Valentine's Day I get a wonderful card from each of them you know I love you sweet but you know when you say it face to face hand to hand I, I, I want to make it more vocal more you know, I'm here, and I'm always going to be here, even when I'm not, that you'll know that I've loved you. I'm, I'm crying yeah, right emotional. now. I'm crying yeah. right now. You know, a lot of people... And do you tell your mom you love them? Oh, yeah. All the time. Yeah. See? yeah. So it, you changed. Not, not, when, that, when that speed came and shot that uh, in Emporia at Elliot's house, not a lot of people prior to that were aware that our mom was sick at the time. Right. And so that's kind of when... It first became public that she was sick and uh, going through that uh, and how she handled it, as we said in the piece, was was inspiring. But we had a lot of people, friendships, uh, people like Rick Hendrick back in the day that really stepped up to the plate uh, and helped us helped our help our mother at that time. And that was um, she's a fighter. So I'll, I'll take that a step further. A lot of people probably don't know this, but in my eyes. I think Mr. Hendrick helped save my mom's life. And the reason why is she got diagnosed with breast cancer, okay? Right. This was like 2009, I think, Hermie, so in that eight or nine. And her doctors in where she was, I'm not going to say where, what, her, the doctor she was going to kept putting everything off, kept putting everything off. And she was getting sicker and sicker and sicker. Hmm. And... Hermie and I were actually staying together in New Hampshire on the bus. New Hampshire, yeah. New Hampshire on the bus. And we got off the call, got off a phone call with Mama, and we just looked at each other and like, man, we got to do something. So that was the call. We got the call that the can had gone through the lymph nodes and it was in other parts of the body and all those kinds like, of things. It, it was bad. We got a bad Spread. phone call. Mm -hmm. So I called Ray Evernham and said, look, I'm trying to get in touch with Mr. Hendrick. He, um, you know, has the the Levi's Children's Home and in Charlotte and does a lot with the hospital. We just, this is where, where I'm at. I was driving for Evernham at the time. So he said, sure. So he gave me Mr. Hendrick's number. And this is 9.30 at night, 9 o'clock at night. So I call Mr. Hendrick, who's from South Hill, Virginia. He knew my daddy, kind of all in the same age. So I, we told him what was going on. He said, my doctor will be calling you. So 
we sat around the phone for a few minutes. Mm-hmm. Dr. Lemontani calls our phone and we have to go through Lemontani what the issue was with our mom and what was going on. Right. He said, can you have her in my office Monday morning? And we're in New Hampshire. Can you have her in my office Monday morning first thing? Yes, sir, we can. So he took my plane and flew my mom to Charlotte Monday morning to meet with Lemontani. And he pretty much said, you know, this is going to hurt. It's going to be painful. It's going to be rough, but you're going to live. You, you, you know, I'm not going to let you die. Wow. So Mr. Hendrick kind of changed. And either the next day or the following day, we went from thinking she was going to have surgery maybe six weeks from now to having it like right now, Tuesday or Wednesday of, the, that, of that very week. But it turned despair into hope, it sounds like. Yep. Yeah, and that wasn't her only exposure to cancer, right? Didn't she? She had two battles with it. Yeah, yeah, two battles. I mean, she's a fighter. And from that that audio that you just heard, what an amazing bond you all have. Let me let me ask you this: What in your minds, as brothers involving your family, is the greatest story memory that you might have with regard to racing? I know your dad and your and your uncle got you into racing. What what was that one thing for each one of you that really meant? Racing is family. Family is racing. <laughs> the funniest thing I remember is, you know, my dad's a fighter. He's a competitor. He, he does not like to lose. He does anything. not like oh, to I lose. Can, I can see that. And I remember <laughs> being on Hermes pit crew at Martinsville for the big late model race. So people listening to this podcast in the Virginia area will know the big late model races they used to have. And they still have it's them. Today, but it used to be yeah, 120, 125 cars there. Yeah, they still have them coming. And, Hermie, like, qualifies seventh out of 120 cars. He, he makes the main event and runs in the race. We don't run well. He, I think he, maybe he got lapped. He might have finished 15th, 16th, wherever. And I remember thinking, you know, we've had a good day. Cars in one piece. We made the race. So as a pit crew, we're thinking, we had a good day. Where well, our dad walks down off the stands <laughs> and starts peeling his name. Don't say anything to anybody. Starts peeling his the name. sponsors were being removed. <laughs> From the car, peeling right his the name off the quarter panel. <laughs> You're kidding me. I am not kidding no. you. And we're all like, dude, what in the world? He said, if y'all going to run this damn bad, take my name off the car. Wow. I didn't come I'm here to sponsor surprised. a 15th <laughs> place car. So that's the household I tell my wife all the time. The household I was born and raised in was this. Yeah. You know, the house you were born and raised in was that. Right. But that's the household Hermie and I were raised in. Where you fight for, and honestly, and I hate to tie it to this, this reminds me of the political battle that y'all are in and the, the fight that y'all had with Governor Northrum and, and what's right and government overreach is that's in our blood. It's to fight. Yeah. Don't take no for an answer. Show, show me face to face what's right or wrong and, and don't back down. And that's, that's kind of how our racing was. My dad was all about fighting to win and, and do what's right and give it all you got. But that's the story I remember. We thought we did good, and he came in and started peeling the number, the name outside of the car. For me, um, and I don't remember how involved Elliot was at this time either, but, you know, my first year that we had our own team kind of in late models, but, but the first year I ran some races, I re- drove Butch Savakas' car. We rented his car, ran some, got some experience. Then we built our own car, and we started going. And, you know, it was a struggle from time to time. But I remember – either the first or the second time that I decided to go right over here to Richmond to Southside Speedway mm-hmm. to run, that was a tough racetrack. I got beat up 
pretty good over there and didn't run very well. And so after the race, I'm having this talk with my dad and he's giving me the, Hermie, you might just want to try to find something else to do. This, the racing thing is just not going to be what you're going to be doing. And look, I don't matter. I'll tell you what he, he said. This is embarrassing <laughs> is what he would say. So we loaded up with our uh, heads hung low, come down from uh, south side. We get back to the shop over here behind the body shop here in Emporia. We unload, we get ready, and my guys are, we're all moping around because, in essence, our late model career is over based on what my dad told me. Right. So we're sitting there talking, and we made a group decision at that time that, okay, if this is going to be the end of the road, we want to end on a different note than we had tonight at Southside. So we decided that we were going to stay there, service the car, clean it up, and go to Manassas the next day. Dominion. Old, Old Dominion. Dominion Speedway yeah. in Manassas and run the next day. You speak great track. So we do all that. We cook, clean, spend all night. We get up next morning and we go to Manassas. I didn't tell my mom and dad until we stopped in Richmond on the way to Manassas. Because I knew if I called my parents before we left home, Daddy would come down there and lock the gate. He wouldn't let us go. So we went, went to Manassas. I stopped halfway. We called. I know you're going to be mad, but I just want to run one more race. I don't want it to end like it did last night, blah, blah, blah. So we go drive to Manassas, load up. We go practice, qualify, and I won my first late model stock car race that night. What year was that? I'm going to say that was 1989. Okay. Maybe 1990. Okay. Either one of the two. You're um, not out of college yet. I was in college. Yeah, but yeah. you're not out of college. So as I'm driving around, coming around to park at, Victor at start finish line, mm -hmm. all I could think to myself was, damn, I wish my mom and dad were here. Cause I won my first race. And as I got out of the car and walked around to do the interview, I saw my mom and dad walk across the track. So as mad as they were, or as that I had, you know, done what they told me not to do. They had decided to get in the car and drive to Manassas and they watched the race from the stands. Since we're talking about family, I got that second clip. And it was my favorite clip of all the clips I watched of Elliot and Hermie Sadler and anything you can find on YouTube. And it was the most heartwarming because we've now, uh, we've listened to the clip about Mother's Day and the importance of your mother in your lives and, 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 and it's just moving and heartwarming. But there is one moment actually, and I'm going to bring it on to you, Elliot, that on the Speed Channel, I miss the Speed Channel. I mean, that was the best it dang was. thing ever. I mean, race day. So many good people, memories. You'd have, every day was a Super Bowl, so you'd have yeah. all-day coverage before you even led up to the race. I miss that. But you were on there. It was the evening before a certain race. It was In right Michigan. around Father's Day. It was Father's Day race in Michigan. And lo and behold, what they start doing is they start handing out, like, pizza. Pizzas, yeah. To distract Elliot. And then all of a sudden, uh, they said, we'll pass that down. Elliot turns around, and there's your dad, yeah. Herman Sr. Yeah. And... It is about eight minutes of the funniest thing I have ever watched in all my life, especially if you know Herm. 
You know, if you know, you didn't know he was coming. I did not. It was a surprise. How did he get there? I don't remember. Yeah, set it up for us because I want to play. I have no. Somebody flew him there. I have no idea. I can't. I'm trying to think back now as we're talking about it. I can't remember. And honestly, I tell you what, Joe went and got him on my plane, but didn't tell me. Mm. So Joe took my plane, went home, picked Daddy up, brought him, and they brought you know uh, Steve Burns and Mark Smith and them all brought him on the show Mm -hmm. and didn't tell me. Yeah. That and he was coming for Father's Day. You're on the panel. You're looking at, uh, you know, like pizza from, uh, yeah. I don't know if it was Domino's or Little Caesars, I think it was. And you're trying to open it up, and he's like, no, this is my pizza. And you're, give that down the line. And he turned around and just, whoa, what are you doing here? <laughs> I swear, it, it, it caught me off guard. It was the start of about the funniest eight minutes, I think, right even to the end when the credits rolled. You guys were hilarious, but it also showed the love that you guys have for your father as well. Let's run this right now. Uh, we're going to break away. It's about eight minutes, but it's the best eight minutes you're going to listen to. Well, Pizza Hut P-Zone stuffed with over one pound of melty cheese. Hey, hey. Toppings baked in a pizza crust. It's huge. Look at here. Anytime. Ooh, yeah. And Look only five ninety. Give me some, baby. All right. All right. Give me some. Elliot. Pass it down this way. Look. That's Look right. Come here. Come Elliot, that is some good stuff. Wait, Thank you, oh, fellas. Wait. Thank minute. you, guys. Are you Thank you very really? much. Elliot, that's my that box good. you got right there. Yeah, look at there. I, I do have your no, box. Give me my box. Sorry. Here. Me. Me my well, box we did right mention there. that it's... Telling, I believe yeah, this yeah, is your box. Sorry, sorry about that. Wait a minute. Okay, what about that box? I like this hey! box. Hey! Hey! <laughs> what are you doing here? Happy Father's <laughs> Day, Elliot Sadler. Surprise. Gotcha. Gotcha. Hey, folks. Elliot Sadler's father. Hey! Now, Elliot, how many races does your dad make in, in a year? He comes a baby 10 or 12 a year, but none way out here. Far. <laughs> I too you at home working today. I was. You come by yourself? Mama's here. Mama's here. Yeah. Oh, good. That's, you know, you, you always ask about mama. Did it? Got to have mama okay. too. Yeah. It's hey, good to see you there, yes, Pop. Glad to be here. You had no Kermit. idea he was coming up no, here. No, until I turned around. Hey, very you cool. guys did you, good, man. That well, cool. the, the thing is, Elliot, you know, I had my father for 75 years, basically, and you're lucky. Yeah. Oh, I'm and, very and, lucky. And the thing is, right now, I just want to say Happy Father's Day. Thank you. From my heart well, and everything we, like that. We've been together a long time. I know that. <laughs> now, now <laughs> Elliot, he, he would know what kinfolk mean, right? <laughs> that's right. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> he made fun of me for saying kinfolk earlier. That's right. But one thing Dad did, and I didn't realize it until I got older, was how much he sacrificed uh, when Hermie and I were young. You know, I was seven years old when I started racing, and we were teenagers, and I never realized how much he and Mom put on the back burner so we could go go-kart racing and have the right parts and motors and stuff like that. So uh, it's pretty cool to have him around all the time to go, go with us to the races. It, it sounds like to me, in your very first go-kart race, the poor man sacrificed a lot. It was not a pretty sight, was tell it? tell that story? No, it wasn't. Uh, the first race, he, you know, Hermie had been uh, racing for a couple of years, and uh, Elliot, he's hanging around, wants to race go-karts. Well, at that particular time, didn't have a class for Elliot. So they, I talked to the track people, and they said, we'll let Elliot start in the rear. He won't bother anybody. He just hang around back there. I said, okay. So the first race, he starts in the rear. Second lap, he's going for the lead <laughs> in between two cars. The cars close. He flips, turns the car to pieces, turns the motor in half, and I go run it on the track, and he stretched out real stiff. And uh, I thought his neck was hurt. And uh, he said, no, 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 Dad, it's my leg. I said, son, we got to go. We got to go. So I got him up and started across the track, and he was pulling on my arm. 
I said, hey, we got to go. He said, Dad, I want to race. <laughs> I was so upset the motor was in half. <laughs> I was going to be okay. <laughs> Herman, uh, Elliot's told a story years ago about actually driving an old pickup truck, I guess, on some property you owned. And <laughs> he said hunt truck. It, it was all out of whack. Yeah, we, uh, he always wanted to, we, had, we, we hunt both of the truck. And uh, I had an old Ford pickup truck down the farm, and uh, so he was probably like 12, 13 years old, and he wanted to drive it. I said, well, he can't hurt it, but so bad. So anyway, <laughs> I let him drive it. And he always complained that he couldn't turn right, but he could turn left. I said, hey, you're some of your mind, none to you. So one day I had a friend of mine, his truck broke down, and asked me could he drive that truck. I said, yeah, go ahead and drive it. And uh, he drove it about an hour and called me and said, I can't drive that truck. I said, what's the matter with it? He said, it won't turn right. It'll turn left a little bit. <laughs> See? And uh, that's how you learn. He always spinning it, rail, yeah. so he couldn't turn it. Yeah. That is true. Well, tell us something else about this young man right here. All the different things he got off into. Was there anything that you wish he'd have done rather than race? I mean, because I know he was a great, you know, basketball player, pretty good football yeah. player. Played pretty good baseball. I mean, was there something you say, man, if I had my, had him to do it over again, what would he have been better at? Well, I don't know if he'd been better at, but, uh, you know, we uh, first thing I want to do is finish school. Uh-oh. And uh, and uh, he finally told me, he said, Daddy, he hurt his knee. Went off school, played some ball, hurt his knee, and then racing is all hell on his mind. And every Sunday night, got to go ready, get ready to go back to JMU. He said, Daddy, he said, I'm wasting my time. I said, son, you got to waste two more years. You got to get the education first. But anyway, he uh, he uh, finally said he had enough of school and he wanted to race. And uh, we we started out having fun, really did. But now it's got so serious, <laughs> so much pressure. It's bad on me and him yeah. now. now. Now my buddy Jeff Hammond is a testimony that baseball pitching was not going to be yeah. his forte. Yeah, yeah. 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 Well, I I <laughs> My dad always told me throw it hard no matter where it went. I'm you, sorry. Did. I'm you, sorry. Did. <laughs> you did. You did. I still think Elliot was aiming. <laughs> hey, let's take a look back at Elliot's surprise. And we, he was surprised. He said, who's this man? <laughs> Where'd this guy come from? <laughs> Very awesome. That's awesome. We'll be right back to the Michigan International Speedway. The Summer Tailgate is brought to you by Mike's Hard Lemonade. In a world gone soft, someone's got to be hard. Elliot Sadler on a special Father's Day edition and his dad, Herman. Now, I, I want to ask you, Elliot's always a good sport and he's the first one to poke fun at himself. Were you at the track when he ate 16 bologna burgers at one time? Well, I was there most of the time. I wasn't there watching him, but I knew he'd eat them every race. Every race, he had to have bologna burgers. I ate a bunch of them. I just, I went a little bit too far that night. <laughs> but to tell you how, how big of a fan Dad is and, and a coach and Craig of everything we do, I asked my dad last week, I said, you know, Father's Day's coming up. You know, we do a lot of hunting and stuff and try to get each other things. I was like, Daddy, what do you want for Father's Day? What would you say? I want to win. That is a win. <laughs> Not anything for him. He wants us to win and, and, and go to victory lane together. So that would be uh, that would be pretty special this summer. About, yeah, don't don't get him a yep. tie. Get him a win. That's yeah. exactly what he. That's what he meant. I, I think that's just so awesome right there. But the, the thing is, right now, Harvey, what I want to know is how much of a handful was he growing up? Because I know how much he is right now. Well, honestly and truly, pretty damn good. I, I really and truly, he had one thing on his mind was racing. Uh, 
He, he kind of fed into a lot of things that maybe we'll, we put him too much, too much ahead because Hermie was racing uh, go-karts and they didn't want to be in it. Hermie wouldn't race in late miles and Hermie wanted to be in it. And even when Hermie started running late miles, the first year, uh, Hermie was running bush and we put him in a, a late model and he had never even been in the car, you know. And this is the truth. We, he ran about four races and wrecked the car four times. All right, we don't need to tell that story anymore. <laughs> and, uh, All right, we didn't tell that story anyhow. Too many times. We, we don't need to tell everybody how many times I wrecked, did it? We keep that to ourselves. But anyway, the fifth time. Here he goes. Well, no, we can't. No, we can't go off the air. So, uh, we can't tell Happy Father's Day. Happy Father's Day. Father's Day. Right, Dad and Jerry, love you, Dad. See you Sunday. Well, that's something right there. You know, oh, the, only thing, yeah. the only thing that was missing from Big Herm's uh, appearance there, and, and I think he's a natural for, for being a star, was one, he did not crop dust. <laughs> you don't know crop, that. <laughs> you don't know that. He didn't crop dust the panel. And, mm. and at the end, he didn't say, well, how about I talk to you later? I'll talk to you later. How about that? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I think, I think the one thing that both Ellie and I will both say is, what a guy. This goes not only for racing, but for ball baseball softball anything um he is ultra ultra super competitive just wants us to give a hundred percent but even when we don't have success after he has a little bit of a period he comes back around and yeah. tries to pump us back up and, and and go again so he's he's always expected and wanted us to uh to achieve at the highest level uh and he's disappointed like we are when we haven't but um, to be fair to him, he's always in his own way at his time, he's always come back around to try to uh, push us to get off the mat and go again. You know, he seems to to fit the the old phrase, which is I hate to lose more than I love to win. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but yet, as long as that competitive spirit is, you're putting 110% into it, then the outcome's the outcome. Let me tell you a, a quick story that once I heard this story gave me a whole different perspective of my dad. It's one of the reasons why that I'm thankful for you fighting with me on this litigation against government overreach into small business. That a lot of people don't understand, but my dad's dad, our grandfather got killed in 1973. And before they even buried my grandfather, a competitor of my dad's in the petroleum business came to my dad's office and said, I want to buy Sadler Brothers Oil Company. And my dad, I was four years old at the time. My sister was seven, Missy. My dad says, listen, I've got a wife and two young kids. I've also got a mother and a sister that I'm responsible for. I don't know what I own, and I don't know what I owe. So I can't sell anything right now. Mm -hmm. And this person says, well, if you're not going to sell it to me, I guess I'm going to just have to take it. And Daddy said, well, I guess that's just what you're going to have to do is just take it. And I say all that. So you look at my dad. He's 30 years old, just lost his father. Right. And he's got a business, a company, a wife, two small kids, mother and sister that he's responsible for. So he took in 1973, and from 1973, really until I came back in, in really 2018 and 2019 full-time, he built his business on the free market system one place at a time. And he built them, he competed, 
He borrowed money. He over-leveraged, over-mortgaged. He did everything he could. He drove the transport truck himself. He drove the delivery truck himself. You know, he's done all these things to build his business one location at a time, the way it's supposed to be, the way supposed people are supposed to be able to do it in the United States of America. And then so I show up, and you've got these people coming in with these out-of-state special interests and casinos and all that and say, okay, Saddlers, y'all have done well. So we're going to just take this from y'all and mm. give it to somebody else. And so so I guess I'm going to have to take it. That's what they told my dad. 2.0. Yeah. yeah. But with the skill games. That's it. Same thing. Yeah. Same no thing. Order. And you know what? I know what a thrill it is for you guys to win for your dad. Because it was a thrill for me to have him actually put his hand on my shoulder and go, you did pretty good. Yeah. And I was like, pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I mean, what a, what a guy I, now. I think one thing that Hermie and I are very fortunate about, never once I felt like in our career that we were by ourselves, that if we needed mom or needed dad or needed each other, we knew we could make that phone call. Even as, even as tough and competitive as my dad was, or if he was frustrated on the way we ran that night or the way we competed, we never felt like we were by ourselves. We always had a safety net that we could lean on with him to, you know, like a sounding board. And I think that helped us get through a lot of times in our career and in our life. That was, you know, that, that was tough. Cause when you compete for a living and I try to explain that to my kids now that I'm helping day to day, when you have to compete for a living to put food on the table, you, you have to be wired different. Just, there's some different things that have to go on that, because if you don't compete, if you don't bring your best every day, whether it's to a field or to a court or to a racetrack, then results are not going to be there. The money's not going to be there. So you're not going to be able to stay a part of that very long. You're not going to be able to support your family. And there's always somebody behind you ready to take your place. Always. There's always ready. You know, racing is a cutthroat business. It just is. Right. There's only so many pieces of the pie. So it was always good to have good support like we have. So let's, you know, we're talking about family now. Uh, I've had the experience to to hang with your family. You guys are so close knit, very loving, every single direction. And I'm talking about the ones named Sadler, not the outlaws. Uh, but what is it about that for you guys when it comes to your children? I mean, you know, you, Elliot, have changed entirely your focus from that competitiveness to now being a father, a coach, and helping others achieve their dreams in the same way that you achieved your dream. Let's talk about that a little bit. I mean, you came out of racing. Most people don't leave racing like that. And you made almost like a 45-degree a turn there. You turned right. So to me, um, racing was so competitive and, you know, consumed me for so long. But it was, again, it was my personal dream and my personal effort that I was putting into it. And, it, like, it was all about my results. And I think once I figured that out, that I had done enough of that, now it's about helping kids reach their dreams and, and get them the proper platform so they can succeed and set them, set them up for success was all I needed. And it's, it's what I needed personally at the time, that I was trying to help all these other kids get them in the right lanes and in the right direction where they can pursue something that they believe in. And the competition side is still there. It's just... It's on a baseball field now. Or it's on a basketball court or a football field, whatever. But my wife and I are having so much fun in life creating opportunities for kids that sometimes wouldn't normally have them. That's we, we are having way more fun now doing that. And that's what we're consumed with at home. 
she being a school teacher and a librarian and me being a coach or a mentor or a helper, and, and we, we're doing things that we feel can help these kids get opportunity. Listen, people helped us when we came along. People helped me get into racing and get through racing and all of that. You, you don't always do it by yourself. So I want to do the same. I want to return those favor because there's nothing more rewarding than a parent coming up to me going, thank you so much, or we appreciate your time, or appreciate what you're doing. There is no money value to put on that, not to Elliot. That my wife and I love what we're doing, and um, we love seeing the results of it. So let's talk a little bit about your philosophy because you can, you know, if you follow you on um, social media like your Facebook page, you have a very distinct and different philosophy when it comes to educating children at the same time you're teaching children at the same time that you're lifting them up in sports and teaching them bigger lessons than what that dad who's, you know, maybe on the third base side screaming at his kid or screaming at the umpire about. Talk about that a little bit. For so us. my biggest thing, I, 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 a few things I have talked to my parents about the first time I meet them when they bring kids in. You tell your kid you love to watch them play. Don't fuss at your kid about him missing a ball at third base or striking out. That You need to create a relationship with your kids that you love to watch them play. That's all they need to know from you because that's what they need. They, they will respond to that better. Let me be the bad guy. I don't need to get on your kid about something to happen in the game to teach him something, and then you do the same thing on the way home. Second thing is, I don't do this for you. I'm sorry, parent. I'm not here for you. I'm, I'm here for those kids. Uh, we have a very, I have learned to be very honest, very proactive, very upfront. But at the end of the day, I'm not here for you. I, I'm sorry if I'm not fulfilling your needs as a parent, but I'm here for them. So I want you to understand that too. You're, as far as I'm concerned, the parent is second fiddle to me. to me. To me, it's all about the kids and what they're learning. And I want the kids to be held accountable because in life today, I don't think we make kids be accountable enough. I think we sweep too much under the rug. You're exactly right. And how are they going to learn when they get in the real world? If they're not accountable now, then how are they going to get in the real world and be accountable for stuff? And the last thing I try to tell my kids is this. You choose to put that uniform on. That was a choice you made. So if you're not willing to put in the work, in the work ethic, to get something better that you chose to be a part of, you chose to wear that uniform, how are you going to be in life when you have to put a uniform on you didn't choose, mm. but you had to put a uniform on to support your family, support your kids, to pay the bills? If you don't have a work ethic to support something you choose to do, how are you going to have a work ethic to support your family wearing a different uniform? So that, that, we have to teach them that at a young age to, to go along. You know, I want my kids there 10 minutes early. So if you're there nine minutes early, I'm sorry. You're one you minute You wouldn't late. work it in Elliot. Yeah. Elliot <laughs> you're, you're one minute late. his uniform. <laughs> but, it's, but it's those things, the, the love for each other and accountability, I want my kids to understand and the work ethic that comes with it. The Elliot Sadler rules are the right rules. And, you know, we have so, you're the exception, not the rule anymore. But we have so many parents that have changed that narrative in a way that I think is harmful for children. It's, it's a breath of fresh air for you to speak in this way and to demonstrate how you're changing those those kids' lives, in spite of their parents sometimes, in spite of social media, in spite of their peers, in spite of the bullying going on in school. That's what they need to, to get to adulthood. Yeah, I, I just I look at it differently, and maybe from my history as a professional athlete in racing where it, it's, it's a very tough life sometimes. It's, it's not all what you think it is on TV. 
And I'll give you a perfect example. We're filming this tonight. We have an awards banquet tonight at our school. An awards banquet that lifts up individual accomplishments on a freaking team sport. I don't believe in this at all. Yes, I think we should celebrate our teams and their accomplishment, but I do not buy into the, this kid is the team MVP. He's the most valuable player on that team that a coach has to decide. Why? I got 10, because it's a team sport. He couldn't do that by himself. All you're doing with a team MVP is making the other 10 families, dads, moms, mad because of some personal agenda or what have you. Uh, How the hell are we supposed to create a team atmosphere when we only want to recognize individual accomplishments? It does not make any sense to me. Why not are we not recognizing team accomplishments? Hmm. In, in, my, in my mind, I mean, really, what? so tonight we're going to have an awards banquet. Every high school has it in the United States. Yeah. How many freaking parents are going to be mad tonight when they leave? 80%, 70, 80%. So something we should be celebrating. We have won so many championships this year, team banners that we can put up. And I've had this talk with my kids. Guys, they can't take that away. Right. Yes, a coach from a different team or different organization cannot like you and not vote for you for player of the year because of a personal disagreement or he might not like the school or he might not like you. So he's going to penalize you, but they, they can't take that away. They can't take the team banner away. Wow. So that to me is, you know. So what are you coaching now? Uh, I do a lot of baseball. I mean, you were like a six-sport athlete or I something was. Like I that. played six different sports in high school. So, but I coached. <laughs> and uh, had, a, had a scholarship to play basketball at JMU when you were I had a lot sport. of opportunities to go play baseball and basketball at a lot of different colleges. So but what are you I, coaching I, now? I do baseball, softball, and basketball. Wow. Is, is, that's what I do. So, and, so let's, let's, as we wrap this up, and this has been amazing. Yeah, because look, I got to go set up the gym for the awards tonight. <laughs> <laughs> I got to go get MVP some tables. He's also a tables. janitor. I am a janitor. <laughs> I get help, help try to get the, the, the field clean. I got to go. Uh, so, yard, yard man, maintenance janitor. Yeah. So, you know, we've talked a lot. We, well, we've had some cut-ins with your mom and your dad. You know, as fathers, as family men, and especially, as I said even earlier, the way you guys are so tight at Sadler's, it's, it's an amazing thing. What, what is your, as we, as we leave this podcast uh, and leave people with their final thoughts, what are your philosophies on terms of parenting today, especially the challenges of parenting today that everybody's facing? It's tougher. Uh, it, so many external influences. What's the difference with the Sadler's? Why, why have you raised such great kids? What can we give others as inspiration and maybe a little bit of knowledge? In that yeah, area? I'm a... Uh... It's a tough environment to raise kids in these days. Um, completely different than when I was a kid growing up. You know, Elliot will tell you too. Every weekend we were outside playing ball with our cousins, our yeah. friends, somewhere all the time. We get together, ten or fifteen people down at the barn behind Elliot's house now, and play basketball. If I mean, from sun up to sundown, we go in the backyard and play baseball. We do these other kind of things, and today it's just. So many opportunities for kids to make the wrong choices or be in the wrong groups or, the, you know, so many bad things at every corner. And I give my wife a tremendous amount of credit because, you know, when, when I started, 
uh, my family, you know, Coral was born uh, not long after I got married the following year. So I said, isn't this cool? The little cute little family, we're going to get to travel the country driving race cars and live this wonderful life. Well, then Haley comes along and she gets diagnosed with autism and all of a sudden screeching halt. She's off the road. Haley's off the road. Angie's off the road. Cora can't travel. She's got to do all that. So, you know, and so I continue down the path of trying to, you know, find ways to make a living and do all that. And so my wife um, instilled a lot of great um, character traits uh, in our kids. And I continued with, uh, with all of our kids. And I'm proud to say that, and it's not just my family, it's our extended, it's not just me and my wife, it's Elliot and his wife and their kids and my mom and dad and our whole family, my sister. I mean, you guys pick up and go to every one of your children's games or your nephew's wouldn't miss games. It. Wouldn't miss it now. I mean, it's just a, and it's so I'm on the phone with him and I'm so, like, hey, what are you doing? I got to go, I got to go to Elliot's son's it's, game. Yeah. It's so rewarding. Um, and I've been so lucky, knock on wood, you know, Cora, my oldest, never been in one minute's worth of trouble and is a hard worker. She's very smart. She's very family oriented. Uh, you know, that a, affects my bottom line, right? As a lawyer. I know. Right? <laughs> I know. Okay. But she's expecting her first child, my first yeah, grandchild in November. Uh, you know, Haley. In November? It, in November. Me too. November. Me too. I'm going to be there a grandpa. Uh, Haley. Um, is just the most innocent, loving person you know. Oh, every time I talk to you, she wants to get on the phone with you. Most awesome. Ever. If everybody saw the world through Haley's eyes, it would be a much better place to live in. She doesn't know race, religion, hate, divisiveness. She loves everybody unconditionally. Yeah. And then Naomi coming along is is superstar. Been great. I mean, just just a great kid, hard worker, and you know, very talented, obviously, but is a great friend. i tell you the biggest compliment I heard um, about Naomi was from one of her high school basketball coaches who I'm friends with. He said, you know what? You know, he said, you know, my daughter, this coach's daughter who grew up and played ball with Naomi the, the whole time coming up. And he said, Hermie, he, he told me about six months ago, he said, let me tell you something about Naomi. She's one of the best female athletes that I've ever had a chance to coach. She could play any sport, very, very athletic. She won the athlete of the year in high school and do all that. He said, but the best compliment I can give you is that as talented as she is, she is perhaps the best teammate that I have ever coached. And so that was really one of the nicest things anybody could say to me about, about my child is people can see how, well, she competes athletically, but for her peers and other people in her class and other teammates to say, she doesn't carry herself like a superstar athlete. She doesn't care about, she right. is a good, solid teammate and cares more about the other people than she does herself. And that's about as good a compliment as anybody can give your kid. That's pretty amazing. And that's, and that's true. I mean, yeah. all three of your daughters are amazing people yeah. and you really have raised them the right way. If you, if you had to give one piece of advice to a dad, or, or to my son, who is going to have his first child, what would it be? Well, you typically don't like me when I give you parent, parental advice. No, it's not been working out too well. <laughs> yeah, he's trying to get me to like the boyfriend of my oh, daughter. You gotta like the boyfriend. Well, shut up, Elliot. What the hell you know? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what, what would be that one piece of advice well, for, for, that, for that father that they can carry with them 
through the ages. And then I want to ask you the same thing, well, Elliot. We'll close. For me, and Elliot and I, you know, of all, our parents were great. But our dad growing up could be difficult to communicate with. Mm-hmm. I've learned now that you have to overcome that. So I would encourage you as a father and soon to be a grandfather. And I would, I would encourage Colin as your son and getting ready to be father to always trust the ability to go communicate with your dad, Colin being with you because there were times growing up. I don't know about Ellis. There were times growing up that I chose to keep things to myself and not get them out and discuss them with my dad because I didn't know how that conversation was going to go. And looking back now that I know the full side and the full reasoning of why my dad was the way he was at certain times growing up, I just always encourage, like in my case now with my daughters, my three daughters, especially Cora and Naomi, their best friend is Angie. Mm. They go to movies together, and they talk to Angie about everything. And I, I encourage now, uh, my advice would be to Colin and to you both to try to be each other's best friend as well and be able to have that that vibe where he can tell you anything. And even if you don't like it, Bill, <laughs> you have that conversation with him and be accepting of it. I'm struggling. And at the same time, struggling be that father that. figure that he needs, yeah. but don't don't always put up the hard don't put up the hard wall all the time. Hard to transition from one to the next. It is. So so Elliot, as we close here, I mean, same thing for you. What is it what is it about being a parent that's so important to you? And what could you help other parents with if you had to give them some advice? Well, my answer is a lot short on Hermes. I, I got a wonderful wife that um is so great to our kids and um we have a lot of religion in our house. Um, we do our devotions every morning. We do prayers before every dinner. We do prayers before every night before we go to bed. And we do it as a family, as a whole. And my wife leads all, my wife leads all of that. And she has just been wonderful for me and our kids. Right? We, they really have somebody to look up to. And I think the biggest thing she's helped me with, with the coaching side, mentoring side, coming from her background is understanding people's home life, where I used to, seven or eight years ago, try to treat every kid the same, but I really had to learn kids' home life. Every kid's home life is a little bit different, whether it be good or bad or negative or positive, whatever, and things that we can do to maybe offset that. But my thing that I've learned the most from her, and Hermie just brought it up too, is the communication side. Just communicate as much as you can don't assume they know this or know that. Really communicate, be proactive with them, and, uh, and, and be their friends. You're competing with their ear because there's so many other influences competing with your you know, bad I, influences. I, I try to <laughs> tough influences. I try to at least a couple times a week to with Cora and Naomi either call or just text them and say, "What are you doing? What's going on?" You know, Cora, especially going through a pregnancy now, right. She lost the first child, and so we're trying to support her to, to, to be positive about all that. And with Naomi, you know, of course, I love the softball and do all that, but mm-hmm. a couple of nights a week, I just, I'll call her a text and say, what'd you do today? You know, how'd your day go? Those kind of things, just to try to, to keep that vibe in that, in that line of communication, because I want them, whether it's we or 
with my wife. I don't want them to ever hold anything in that they don't feel like they can talk to right. us about. I think a lot of people that kids, when they have trouble through the teenage years and young adults, it's because they sometimes held some things in and, you know, it could affect the way they make decisions and live their life. So if nothing else, we want to make sure that we provide them every opportunity to, to have somebody, a sounding board that we're not going to be judgmental and we're going to try to advise them and encourage them in the best way we can. And I think that's important for kids to have that at home because as Elliot just said, a lot of families and a lot of kids don't have that. Well, you know, the first episode that we had you on, Elliot, was entitled Brotherly Love. Mm -hmm. That's obvious here between the two of you. You guys are really an inspiration for all of us dads, all of us parents, all of us as Americans and human beings. I mean, I really want to thank you for what you provide. You live in a way that's an example for us all. And I can't speak enough about that. And I'm, I'm honored to be your friends. But thanks for sitting down for a good hour and a half. I mean, are you going to be able to get the tables and chairs out in time, or, or have gonna, I pushed you? I'm giving me a walk out, man. I'm sorry. <laughs> and Hermie, you're coming to Richmond. I got to go back to Richmond, but you're yeah. coming to Richmond because you got something important going on tonight. Why don't you tell everybody? I'm excited. I am uh, dancing in the Virginia Down Syndrome Association Dancing with the Stars Gala. The actual dance is May 25th at the Altria Theater in Richmond. If anybody follows my social media, you can go find out how you can donate. Uh, to my team or to this cause to raise money for Down Syndrome Association. Who's your but I got to practice tonight. Her name's Taylor. She's a Down Syndrome uh, kid and just melted my heart first time I danced with She's her. Beautiful. I get to see her again tonight and we're going to rock it. That's great. Maybe stop by the apartment afterwards. I will. And uh, Elliot, thank you again for everything yes, you do. Sir. Everything you. you are. Yep. And thanks for coming back in and doing this. Uh, this is a great episode. Thanks for doing this. Uh, thank Glad you, Hermie. The lunch crowd is starting to rock here at Fosho. <laughs> we got to beg out here. And you know who the loudest people are at Fosho? The police. Friggin' cops. Yeah. <laughs> I smell bacon. I'm Virginia State Center and criminal defense attorney, Bill Stanley. Come to the Stanley Law Group. And I'm leaning right. And I'm Hermie Sadler, turning left. This has been fun. I appreciate yes. everybody tuning in. We appreciate it. And we'll see you again next week. God bless you all. MLS number 65084, Equal Housing Lender. Woo! Tax season is here, which means you've received or are expecting that tax refund any day now, and you're thinking about what to spend it on. How about a new home? With SaveWithConrad.com, we're helping renters become homeowners every single day, and it's more affordable than you think. You don't need perfect credit. You don't need a huge down payment. In fact, you may not need a down payment at all. At SaveWithConrad.com, we take the stress out of the home buying process. We'll determine your buying power. We'll even help you find a realtor. And unlike the banks, we don't say no. We say not yet, but here's how. So if you're not ready right now, we'll get you on a plan to be ready. Stop throwing your money away, paying someone else's mortgage with your rent. And start the path towards owning your own home today at SaveWithConrad.com.